house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that will stay up past midnight for that Mary Magdalene album drop. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my friend, who I would refuse to pay a ransom demand for, so don't even bother trying, Chris File. Hello, Chris. I promise I'm not derailing us, but I have to loop back to this. The visual album, Mary Magdalene's visual album, Uh or the, like, concert of her new album, what streaming service would agree to be with Mary Magdalene? It's hard to think that it would be on Disney+, Plus, a la Taylor. No, it would be, like, Jesus would start his own Tidal-esque platform. Bible Plus. (laughs) Bible Plus. <laughs> Galilee Records. From Galilee Records comes uh, Mary Magdalene's visual album. <laughs> Blasphemous. All right. No, we are putting. That's the name of the album. Blasphemous. Yes. What a hot mm-hmm. title for an album that would be. And it's and one it's of just ripping off Promiscuous by Nelly Furtado. And it's one of those ones where she like on her Instagram story two years ago, just like put posted the word blasphemous and like coming soon and then for like years people would be like when's blasphemous coming when's it gonna happen when are we gonna get it and it was just we don't want your makeup line give us the album right, exactly stop making leggings we want the new album mary magdalene drop that album she would be genuinely like the hottest pop star come on she would be like gazelle in zootopia crossed with uh baby annette i think is the that, aesthetic that is I'm going fair. with? What's that? Princess Sophia's baby in that. Because she's the lineage. <laughs> it's true. That's just the lineage. The lineage is here, darling. All right. No, we're putting that in the back seat. We are right. moving on. We, we, we couldn't just let that go. We couldn't. Um, yeah. We're here to talk about Ransom, first of all. You wouldn't pay a ransom for me? It's only to protect, it's to dissuade kidnappers from kidnapping you in the future if they know that I would refuse to pay a ransom for you. Got it, got it. And you It's know, only to keep you safe. 
you know because you are such a public figure yes that if you turn the ransom against the kidnappers yes people will try to turn them in well the you know the garys would be out in full force yes if you would. got kidnapped as a way for people to get to me which they would know that like if you want to get to me come at me through my podcast co-host and if they did that the Garys would you would there would be no safe place for you, kidnapper, because the Garys would find you. I think if I was kidnapped, I would not be kidnapped for very long. I would not make a good hostage. Wait, what I would was be that movie? Very what's, annoying hostage. What's the movie? They would get or, very sick of me. Or is it the play? What's the one where like they kidnap somebody and they're like unbearable? Um Ransom of High uh, uh 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 the Ransom of Red Chief wasn't that like a short story where the idea was they kidnap a kid and the kid is like absolutely insufferable? Right. The kid is like um Dakota Fanning in War of the World. <laughs> like, no, no. <laughs> Bring her back. Um and they, it's not worth it. Yeah, exactly. All right. We don't need the money. We are in our third of five episodes. In our May mini-series on Entertainment Weekly cover movies, we have progressed to the fall movie preview now. We are not going in chronological order. We are going in the order of seasons, you see. So previously, we've done a spring movie preview with Panic Room, and then a summer movie preview with The Da Vinci Code. Obviously, you've listened to those episodes. You've loved. You've laughed. You've uh, you've thrilled with them. You've dog-eared you've the pages. You've greenlit my big fat Greek baby. That's right. <laughs> It's true. Coming uh, summer 2024, my big fat Greek baby, get ready. Um, the coast is toast. <laughs> my big fat Greek baby four. <laughs> um, uh, my big fat Greek baby's day out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Bringing up my big fat Greek baby. It's a whole franchise. It's a whole cinematic universe. It's going to happen. Um Anyway, it's going to be like, look who's talking, but with like a heavy Greek accent on the baby's inner monologue. Like it's going to be almost indecipherable. It's look who's talking, but the baby is voiced by Andrea Martin. (laughs) Exactly. It's exactly what we all want. Um, And then who voices the baby's uh, vestigial twin, though? Lainey Kazan. Lainey Kazan. (laughs) We're giving this away for free. Someone's going to snake this idea from us, Chris. We got to stop. Nia Vardalos, don't even try it. This is our idea. This one's ours. Um, You can have a consultant fee, of course, Nia. We owe everything we have, we owe to you. So, uh, truly, uh, no no disrespect intended. But anyway, Fall Movie Preview, 1996. It was a double issue. August 23rd and 30th, 1996, I had just turned the very pivotal age of 16 years old, Chris. I was uh, about to come into my own as a very scared and probably shy teen. So truly, I was flipping through the pages of EW, looking for my culture, and obviously we'll have these images up on uh, the Twitter uh, feed and also on the Tumblr page. But if you look at the cover of this Entertainment Weekly special double issue, Fall Movie Preview, right there front and center is everybody's favorite human being, great guy Mel Gibson, star of Ransom. Um, But I want to focus briefly on, of course, the traditional EW Fall Movie Preview top banner, where it's got six... The headshots of characters from movies. And so we have... The floating heads. The floating heads. We've got Brad Pitt in sleepers. 
We've got Winona Ryder in The Crucible. We're definitely going to get into the high, high, high Oscar expectations that were placed on The Crucible in this issue. Um, Chris O'Donnell, star of, of course, everyone remembers the John Grisham adaptation, The Chamber. Um, Sandra Bullock from, of course, everyone remembers the Richard Attenborough directed In Love and War, starring, weirdly, Chris O'Donnell. So Chris O'Donnell was like... <laughs> As, like... Who, Hemingway. He Hemingway. He, was, yeah, he yeah. played Ernest Hemingway, and she played uh, a, a, a war nurse who, like, fell in love with him. Um, yeah. Who we'll wasn't... get into it because there are a lot of movies that this is true of in this fall movie preview, but I believe that movie was pushed. Oh, there's a few of them. I'm not sure. Uh, you may be right about In Love and War. It's definitely true about another couple of them. Um, uh, worth looking up. Well, worth looking that up maybe while I talk, uh, Chris, if you could uh, uh, I do, will. do a quick IMDb. Tell us the last two in the top corner. I mean, the last the two right are um, Star Wattage personified. It's Tom Hanks for That Thing You Do, his directorial debut, and Whitney Houston for the Penny Marshall-directed film The Preacher's Wife. Which they only, uh, they give The Crucible the benefit of the definite article, The Crucible. But here it only says Preacher's Wife, which sounds a little bit more ominous, maybe. Like she's, uh... A gritty du- reboot. Gritty reboot. <laughs> That's right. Gritty reboot Preacher's Wife. Um, yeah. I'm incorrect. This opened the week before Christmas. What did? In Love and War? Yeah. Interesting. The Preacher's Everybody's Wife, favorite holiday film. What was the what was the single from that? I know when you believe was the Prince of Egypt, and I always get that confused because it's around the same general time period. And it's not shoop shoop exhale, because that's obviously waiting to exhale. Um It's I believe in you and me. I believe the one in that I was me. saying in last week's episode should have been an original song. Not yes. Me. Yes, I agree. It absolutely should have. All right, so that's sort of, we're going to, again, the plot descriptions in these episodes are coming late. We're going to get to Ransom as a movie, a movie I was very excited to talk about because it is uh, popcorn cinema of the mid-90s personified, and there are a few things I love more than popcorn cinema of the mid-90s. It is a sweet spot for me. I understand that it's a generational thing, but it's my generational thing, and you're listening to, uh, uh, in part, my podcast. So... um, (laughs) Uh, you're going to have to deal with that. But I want to delve into, Chris, this issue. I ha- Physically, I have the copy of this issue, and then I sent you scans is how we're doing it. Uh, whereas last week, we both had the Da Vinci Code issue in our hot little hands, which was pretty cool. Um, this one is, oh, if you could see how struggling the actual physical copy of this issue is. The back cover has already fallen off. The front cover oh, is hanging by a thread. But we're going to soldier on. Um, One of the things I I dog-eared from the news and notes at the beginning of the book, they have a little sidebar on how, at this point, Matthew McConaughey had already starred in A Time to Kill, which had released earlier this year. Massive hit movie. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow had broken out the year before with both, uh, with or with Seven, and Emma, I believe, had been a spring or a summer movie by this point. Emma was just released because if you get into the reviews portion of yes. this movie in the box office, yeah. Emma was just coming out as this issue dropped. So they're two very sort of newly minted leading uh, Hollywood stars, and the whole crux of this little sidebar is... Um, People who are who are very into movies and maybe critics and journalists know who these two are, but regular people don't. And so they literally like went into the streets of New York and Los Angeles, and you could tell like 
I would love to talk to Adam about like what level of person had the responsibility of like stepping outside of the Time Warner building and finding passersby and shoving a photo of Matthew McConaughey in their face and be like, who is this? <laughs> Makes me think of the Margaret Cho Prince joke. Like, I just thought that do was you so know cool who to is? walk up to someone and say, do you know who Prince is? Yes. Um, and lo- most of the most of the responses are like, she's probably a model, and he's like, like the the lack of familiarity on the part of these people uh, was very very funny. The way they would like uh, describe what these two people probably were, um, and it's funny because it's you know Entertainment Weekly, nineteen ninety six. This could have been about Jonathan Sheck and. I'm trying to think of like a more like flash in the pan actress at the time. So like to have it be Matthew McConaughey and Gwyneth Paltrow, two A-listers who are s- still A-listers today is, uh, is, you know, pretty prescient. So good for them for that. Matthew McConaughey though. Like I, I did chuckle at that piece at first, but Matthew McConaughey at least like, Sure, it's even silly because he is ostensibly the lead of A Time to Kill, which was one of the biggest movies of this year. But, like, even at the time, when people talked about that movie, they didn't talk about him. He's a face on the poster, and it's like Sandra Bullock, Samuel L. Jackson, and that guy. But he definitely, like, then started getting cast in a whole bunch of things. He would be in Contact next year in 97. And, like, so clearly, like, that did springboard him but like just i'm reading through these descriptions and it's like people just don't know how to differentiate handsome people maybe because people are like he looks like a businessman he looks like a model he looks like luke perry he um he she looks like what is it she looks like a model she looks like julia roberts she looks like cindy crawford she looks like Alinda evangelista i mean basically but it's just like first of all cindy crawford julia roberts they don't look they don't look alike it's just weird and also neither one of them are blonde and that feels like (laughs) that was gwyneth paltrow's sort of defining characteristic back then was she was like this pretty blonde ingenue and it's just weird that you just sort of like walk up to people and they're like yeah she's pretty just like all those other pretty people who all seemingly look the same to me and here we are you know uh, trying very much to distill everybody's star essence into these very specific and uh, unique boxes and people are like yeah they're they're good looking as as all these people are it's like oh okay um i want to sort of quickly run down Jim Mullen's hot sheet, not for the punchlines, which are all, of course, very bad, but like what was in the news then? It's almost like, you know, uh, I'm Jay Leno going through headlines, right? Uh, Bob Dole had just picked Jack Kemp as his running mate for the 96 election. Uh, the Island of Dr. Moreau was newly in theaters. Um, Cringe. Uh, yes. Um, Christy Brinkley was getting married again. Um, America Online wanted to uh you know expand their their purview calvin klein oh was this ck1 i think ck1 was maybe just about to come out which is like a landmark moment for teenage uh people who uh, underestimated uh how much cologne or overestimated how much cologne they should be wearing at any given time <laughs> um also, what's number 15 on Jim Mullen's hot sheet? It just says, the big baby. There's a 68-pound, 18-month-old child running around out there. They knew about my big fat Greek baby before we did. 
This is thing is my big fat Greek baby is a period piece. One hundred percent. It's a nineties movie. You guys, my big fat Greek baby is a nineties movie. This is going to happen. We're going to make it. Oh, and also the thing, the big fat it's... Greek baby is Nia Vardalos's character Tula as a baby, and like some stuff happens, but then eventually she becomes a normal size baby. <laughs> That's right. That's She's a journey. like wreaking havoc, and then right. by the powers of Windex, they bring her to normal baby right. size, and then she is a baby that behaves. Oh. And you know, R.I.P. Michael Constantine. To, uh, yeah. Speaking of Michael Constantine, uh, Thinner was in this uh, movie preview issue, which is the only other uh, Michael Constantine movie that I really know of, where he's the uh, 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 Romani uh, uh, malcontent who who curses the guy with Thinner. Um, I curse you, thinner. Thinner. I lo- it could not be these. It could not be a scarier trailer for a movie that yep. is absolutely not scary. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Um, the other thing from the news though that does show up in a couple of these things is apparently they had just discovered uh, life on Mars, non-intelligent, non-human. They were like some sort of thing under a rock in on Mars had was uh, living, whatever. So that was the big news back then. So if you know, this and was from Mars water, from Mars water. But this is like over twenty-five years ago. If you think that you know, just now we hit just last year had all of this. Like, oh, they just sort of admitted that. Uh, that aliens are real like uh, still a long way to go still could be a long way to go anyway um one other thing in the news and notes section there was just had been this tragedy on everest where a bunch of people a bunch of mountain climbers had died and uh typical of hollywood they were hot on the trail of trying to make a movie about it that apparently Bruckheimer, Jerry Bruckheimer was uh, in the works to trying to make a movie. Roger Donaldson, who at that point was shooting Dante's peak, which would come out the next year was going to direct this thing. And there's this weird sense of trying to be like Everest is so hot right now. The Himalayas are so hot right now because Brad Pitt's making seven years in Tibet as we speak, which is kind of funny. Uh, uh, this had Oscar Buzz movie, Seven Years in Tibet, one of our most forgotten by me episodes. I was so, <laughs> when I remembered that, that we actually did that episode, I was amazed. But, I feel like we're going to have to do something for our forgotten episodes on our upcoming 200th episode. I'll yeah, work on it. I'll work on we'll it. figure it out. Um, but anyway, so eight people had died uh, atop Everest in, uh, in May of 1996. And so they were going to make a movie and it never happened. I was literally Googling, trying to figure out Roger Donaldson never made an Everest movie. Jerry Bruckheimer, to the best of my knowledge, never made an Everest movie unless I totally missed it until that 2015 Everest movie that uh, Jake Gyllenhaal was in. So they finally made it. Somebody finally made it. It just took uh, almost 20 years. So there was that. Oh, the other thing I wanted to point out, Chris, in the books section, because I did go as far as the books section. And I this that. was wild. Yeah. Candace Bushnell had just published Sex in the City. And so the whole write up, because at this point, nobody knows who Candace Bushnell is. Uh, and so they're like trying to like introduce her. And it's just like, literally, it's like, and of course, this makes sense because like Sex in the City, the book is this sort of you know, life imitates art thing with uh, Candace Bushnell. And they were like, she's a daily news columnist. She has a sex column. She 
disguises people's names with aliases like Carrie and Mr. Big. And it's like, oh, wow. It's literally like somebody is writing an article about Carrie Well, Bradshaw. and I didn't realize that, like, whoever Big was based on was actually, was known like, outed yeah. by name? Yes. Yeah, people knew who he was. He was a... Um, Vogue publisher, Ron Vogue publisher. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the real Can life... Can we also Mr. talk Big. about this photo, photo of yes. Candace Bushnell, where she is... Wearing possibly wearing a chair that it's a, feels like it's sexual, but it's also just an ugly chair. Listeners, we're gonna post the photo on our on our Tumblr page, but imagine a uh, a giant metallic wicker. Well, I was gonna say wicker penis and balls that is cut lengthwise as you might slice like um a hot dog if you were trying to like uh, cut a hot dog in half, like sort of sliced lengthwise and um so that like the top part of the like the 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 head of the wicker penis becomes her shoulder pads and the and she's like kind of she's behind and or within this chair she's in a crouch position like she's doing a goblet squat well i was gonna say or like she's doing like the haka like the um like the uh, maori uh, ceremonial dance right like that kind of a thing um it's a it's quite a photo. It's it's a lot, Candace. We're just gonna say. Um it's a lot. So, and I think she's in like a strappy sandal. Yes. Also, there was a Tom Clancy uh book that is being reviewed. It got a B. All I could think of was like how pissed Lee Israel must have been at this point in time. Um <laughs> fucking Clancy. Uh can I just say the reviews in this issue? Far too kind. They gave Clancy a B. They give forgotten Wesley Snipes Robert De Niro vehicle, The Fan, a B. <laughs> yes. The reviews were weird in this issue. There was also, sorry, there was also uh, Party of Five was going to premiere their third season on my birthday. The day I turned 16. Ah. Party of Five, right there, starring uh, uh, Kelly Wolf's husband. Uh, did you have a party of you watching that on your birthday? You know what's funny? I don't think I did. But so, okay. So Party of Five and Beverly Hills 90210 were b- premiering their new seasons on the same night. And it was a late summer premiere, which sometimes they would do with the teen shows to try and like hook the the kids while they were still on summer vacation. Which is so funny to think of that this was a strategy. Um because, like, what are kids doing on... Well, it's summer, so kids must be home watching television. It was always so such an odd uh, strategy. And yet it often worked. Okay, so, uh, both shows staged summer road trips. 902NO's Brandon and Steve head for the South, where Brandon hits it off with an African-American girl and learns a hard lesson about racism. Yikes. Meanwhile... Party of five boys Will and Bailey go south of the border to Mexico with their girlfriends, parentheses, Alana Ubeck and Jennifer Love Hewitt. Uh, the underattended party le- needs all the help it can get because its ratings were flailing. Um, uh, and it was going to go up against News Radio on NBC and Grace Under Fire on ABC, all shows that struggled in the ratings. So um, uh, there you have it. Yes. Party of five. What a moment to be alive. Um, I'm glad Kelly- I have never seen my grandmother stan a television program as much as Party of Five. Really? Oh, that's amazing. Oh, she was a big Party of Five person. Did she, she was, like mad when they canceled it? Was she like it. invested in any of the like? Was she like a Bailey and Sarah fan? Was she uh, uh, not particularly that I remember? Okay, all right. 
I remember that show was the first time I had ever seen a TV show uh, address abortion, timely enough, um, on shows, because Nev Campbell's character got pregnant and then she was going to have an abortion. And, um, and then at the end of the episode, she's like, waking up the morning that she's going to go have the abortion and she has she finds out she has a miscarriage and i remember i think it was telling um it might have actually been one of my parents about it and how much like that episode really made me think about um abortion and and why i would be in favor of it and i'm pretty sure i remember somebody and it might have been one of them being like yeah but it was kind of a cop-out that they had her uh have a miscarriage instead of right. going through with it and i never really had considered that before because the episode had already by that moment in the episode changed my or not changed my mind but like solidified my uh my my 16 year old uh opinion undeveloped un-nuanced right. understanding right. of reproductive rights right um I mean, as so many things do, that's also, like, a very 90s conceit of, like, we're going to talk about the thing and maybe hope to uh, open hearts and minds, but then we're going to, you know, really not have to, like, we're going to make it as uncomplicated as possible. Right, right. Um, Listen, network television, 1996. All right, so. uh, Can we talk about the most unwell thing in this issue? Oh, please, do it. Among the reviews in the multimedia section, <laughs> they are reviewing websites. Yes. We- Literally under a banner that says websites. Websites and were such review... sort of like individual and discreetly uh, like, uh, you know, capsulable things back then that you could just review a website. E-Online gets a B+. E-Online. So 1996. Entertainment Weekly. The birth. Reviewing E's website. It's because at this point, EW probably didn't have a website or at least nothing to speak of. And I remember E Online. I definitely remember going to E Online back then, which was like an early pioneer of like I would go and like read, you know, movie news Blog and culture. stuff like there. Um, uh, yeah, Watch with Wanda. Do you remember Watch with Wanda that was full of like TV gossip and stuff like that? I think that was her so. alias, and then she she went by her real name, which I believe was like Kristen DeSantos or something like that. Um, but she had like a Maria lot of Menounos. like uh, TV dish and like reality TV dish and like late nineties, early two thousands kind of era. Um, yeah, so happy uh, happy birthday to to E Online there. Do you want to start delving into the fall movie preview itself because there's a lot going on. There are so many movies. This fall this is issue. wild, Packed. man. As is my. As is my custom, I tend to have really good ideas just as they are becoming not timely. So all I could think of looking at this is like, <laughs> I should like do a thing where I watch all the movies of fall 1996. I'm like, when's the anniversary for that? And I'm like, oh, right, last fall. Like, fuck. <laughs> you big dummy. Um, so but the what first big thing that I noticed time. about this issue, yeah. which I feel like they did on and off maybe when like I'd started to read it, but as each month passes along, they actually have an Oscar like prediction. They not would prediction, do this, but like they the would... like buzz titles for each month. Each they month they would check like, in little column for Yes, a lot. They would do this somewhat often. I feel like they they did it in subsequent years. Maybe not every year, but definitely uh, in subsequent years. It's certainly helpful for us and our purposes to like peek in to what was the <laughs> Oscar like, buzz. See, we're not lying. Exactly. When we've done like previous movies, mm-hmm. like um, to Jillian on her on her thirty seventh birthday. Yeah, it's right there. The- 
Uh, this this issue has quite a few actually movies that we've uh, covered on this podcast before. Uh, just to name a few, as I'm going to go through, like you said, to Jillian on her 37th birthday was one of them. Um, bah, 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 as I go through, I should have bolded these as I uh, as I went through them. The Evening Star, of course, the sequel to mm-hmm. Terms of Endearment. The Ice Storm, which was then moved to 1997. We'll talk about it. Um, and I believe there was one more, maybe not. Um, but anyway, uh, a good little handful of movies that we have definitely covered on this podcast, which is, uh, and movies that we may, uh, cover in the future. Um, yet to come more so though, what it was a lot of, it really made me think that like, as we did in 2003, how there were so many big contenders that towards the end of the year really flopped with Oscar and we made our whole first mini series about just that year. Yes. There was a lot of that this year where it's like a lot of these ones that are being touted as the biggest potential contenders. Yes. End up with one nomination. Well, we've talked about this a few times when we've done 1996 movies, which is uh, the great narrative of that year's Oscar season was it was the indie revolution. This was when four out of the five Best Mm -hmm. Picture nominees were uh, indie movies. Miramax had an amazing year. This was uh, The English Patient won Best Picture, which was Miramax's first Best Picture win. Secrets and Lies was a Best Picture nominee. Fargo, um, uh, Shine was a Best Picture nominee. Breaking the Waves wasn't a Best Picture nominee, but it got major nominations, as did Sling Blade. And a lot of the reason for that was, or or at least it coincided with the fact that a lot of the big studio Oscar prestige stuff either flopped so hard that it didn't get any nominations and thus made it eligible for us to cover it, or what happened more often is that it disappointed enough that it would get kind of a... um sort of a token, like, one or two nominees. There were a lot of these movies. Uh, the Crucible gets a supporting actress and a screenplay nomination, um, but it doesn't get any of the major nominations that it was uh, touted for, and it was touted highly. Like, this issue of EW mm-hmm. in particular is basically Surprising like... Surprising that it wasn't... This is going to be true of next week's, uh, too, but we won't spoil that i was kind of surprised that like the crucible wasn't the cover movie uh-huh. a little bit as the way they were promoting it like i would love granted, to know the mel pol- gibson was the bigger movie star at that point so right they put him on the cover but like ransom isn't even like the top movie of in its the month. november slot right which is interesting. right i would love to know the politics of how ransom ended up as the cover movie of this because you're right it definitely as you're reading the fall movie preview does not feel like it's the story of this fall season. And maybe it was one of those things that, like Adam was telling us that they were saving maybe some of these. I don't know if the crucible ever mm-hmm. got a cover uh, closer to its release. Or they release. thought that like the actual Oscar issues would be covered by the crucible. Very possible because they literally are writing about it and they're like, well, obviously the crucible is going to show up in all major categories. All like they basically had already chalked it up to nominations in all four acting categories. That was going to be Daniel day Lewis, Winona Ryder, Paul Schofield in supporting actor. And then, uh, cause Paul Schofield had just gotten nominated the year before for or two years before for quiz show. Um, and then Joan Allen for supporting actress, which is the only acting nomination that it ends up getting. Um, so obviously that was a big disappointment. We can't do an episode on The Crucible, but like it is for a movie that got Oscar nominations, it follows the this had Oscar buzz uh, arc 
pretty well, I would say. Mm-hmm. As does Rob Reiner's Ghost of Mississippi. Ghost of Mississippi, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Which was the cover, the, the the splash page movie for uh or no, it was the second movie of, of December touted, right? It was it gets a major, major write-up in this. Um I'm trying not to page through as much this year because I know that like it shows up on the audio and it's kind of annoying. Um <laughs> but anyway, Ghost of Mississippi. The big one for December was actually Mars. Mar- I remember Mars Attacks, which we'll we'll <laughs> we'll talk about it for sure. Um, but Ghost of Mississippi was, uh, you know, this big, important, you know, it was about the civil rights era. It was a true story. It had all of your elements. And ultimately, I think its only nomination is James Woods in Supporting Actor. I might want to look that Did up. Did it get a makeup nomination, too? Oh, for James Woods' makeup. That would have that makes a lot of sense. Let me look. Nominated for two Oscars. I bet you're right. Let's see. Supporting Actor and Makeup. Very good, Chris. You're very good at this. All right. Um, So, yeah, that was one where I think sometimes when you have these movies that that tick all the boxes, the risk is that by the time the movie gets there and you and you see it, unless you're doing something really exciting with it, it can seem stale or uh, perfunctory, which I imagine it's been a long time since I've seen Ghost of Mississippi. So, like, I probably saw it when I was like in my late teens early 20s so yeah i probably saw it that year rented from blockbuster um another movie that was touted that i think critics liked a lot better than ghost of mississippi but nonetheless got the cold shoulder from oscar was rosewood which was john singleton's Mm -hmm. movie that was really expected to sort of put singleton back on the map with oscar and to be uh, a big contender and it didn't make a lot of money. It didn't make a lot of money. Of it it was think. not sort of a a groundswell kind of a success. And it made it easier for the Oscar voters who maybe, you know, hadn't seen it or, you know, it sort of lo- maybe lost out on a bunch of like, we got to see some movies at the end of the year to get ready for Oscar. And this was still, I'm trying to think of like where we were in the era of screeners. Because obviously you'd have to send out like, probably still sending out vhs tapes at this point well they might not have been because we both watched this uh siskel and ebert reel of when they're talking about like the oscar nominations that were like snubbed and that they wish had been there they were happy that like were they were happy surprises for them yeah and they keep mentioning fargo that oscar voters watched it on videotape they keep saying videotape, but I think that was an early year oh, far, yes. release. Because Siskel so that to me yeah. says they they were not being getting they weren't receiving screeners. Like maybe yes. they were sent being sent the actual VHS copy that would have been available. But. I, I also watched the Siskel and Ebert Best of 1996 episode in preparation for this, and yeah, Siskel they had both that year they both had picked Fargo as their number one movie, and Siskel mentioned that like when we reviewed this movie 11 months ago, I said you wouldn't see a better movie this year, and I was right. Siskel and Ebert actually this in 1996, uh, interestingly enough, had the same top three movies in slightly different orders. Siskel was. Um, Fargo and then I think Secrets and Lies and then Breaking the Waves and Ebert was Fargo Breaking the Waves and Secrets and Lies. So um uh and obviously all three of those movies ended up being uh, Oscar nominees that year, two of them for best picture. Uh other Oscar buzz movies that underdelivered, I would say Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet is on that list. It does yep. get Oscar nominations, but it doesn't get any major ones. 
Uh, a lot of talk in the blurb about how it's going to be four hours long. It, reference to Mel Gibson's Hamlet. It does make Ebert's list at the of the top ten at the end of the year. And listening to him talk about it made me want to go watch it. I've still never seen it. The running time has been uh, daunting for me. But I, uh, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. It made me want to see it again. Um, the Portrait of a Lady, the Jane Campion movie, which gets a nomination for Barbara Hershey. But in general... Uh, under delivers on expectation. It doesn't get anything for Kidman or Campion. J- John Malkovich gets a big um, sort of splashy focus in the uh, video, the video section of this issue, talking about Mary Riley, Mary Riley, Mary. and um, uh, uh, some other uh, movies that he's in. And so you feel like there was a push for Malkovich and supporting actor for that movie. That never happens. And um so that one is a disappointment marvin's room which gets a best actress nomination for diane keaton doesn't really get anything else and that one of course had meryl it had dicaprio coming off of gilbert grape it had um gwen verdon's in that movie hume cronin's in that movie de niro's in that movie it was a very uh star burden gets the sag nomination for it right i believe that's right i believe that is right um and meryl had gotten a globe nomination for it and then on oscar nomination morning uh they kind of flipped the script and were like nope diane um interestingly in the write-up for that movie they talked about how initially meryl was going to play keaton's role was going to play the sort of meek sister who was dying of cancer and ultimately marvin's room is a movie that i it's not the best movie, but like I generally enjoy that movie. I think it's very good. Um, and Streep, I think, is so much better suited to the more prickly sister who's, you know, the single mom. Well, and then two years later, she would play yes. the sick character in One, in one True, True Thing. Thing and get nominated for it. Yeah. Um, when Renee Zellweger is actually the performance to talk about in that movie, I think. I think Renee Zellweger is astounding. I think they both are, but I think Zellweger is really, really great. The movie I want to get into as we sort of go back to the top of the September uh, part of the preview is Surviving Picasso, the Merchant Ivory movie that, like, even among... Which gets the second, like, most prominent uh, placement. Like, it's wild to me that there's a Merchant Ivory movie that even whenever I think of like, okay, what's the most forgettable Merchant Ivory movie? I always go to the Golden Bowl. And um, so even this is forgotten among that. Like, nobody ever talks about surviving Picasso. Anthony Hopkins as Picasso. Like, it's wild mm-hmm. to me. Um, I only remember surviving Picasso as when Julianne Moore got cast in Hannibal. She was like, we've already worked together on this movie called Surviving Picasso. It makes me want to do this movie at some point fairly soon for, for this at Oscar Buzz, if we can find it, if it actually does uh, exist anywhere. Because also, a little thing I quoted uh, from the write-up, based on... Ariana Stasinopoulos Huffington's biography. Like, Ariana Huffington at this point was so not known (laughs) that they had to put in her maiden name uh, uh, as the biographer. This was, at this point, I imagine, she was, like, still showing up on, like, Politically Incorrect as Bill Maher's token Republican panel member. She was still, like, a Republican at this point. She was married to this sort of, like, big influential Republican. Um wild to me to think about we should do surviving picasso that is my pitch to you um i would be into that that'd be fun because we could talk about merchant ivory how what a, what a, what a great uh, excuse um let's talk let's talk about the the movie that kicks off the preview though the the fall movie preview which is a movie that definitely all of our listeners have seen 
I would be stunned if there is someone who listens to our show and has not seen and adored this movie. The first Wives the first Club. Wives Club. I've seen it many a time. Everybody is in it. Every actress is in this movie. You forget that Marsha Gay Harden is in this movie. You forget that Maggie Smith is in this movie. And... Guanilla. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Berkley and Sarah Jessica Parker and Miss Stalker Channing. And Sarah Jessica Parker, who one of the boxes of this issue says the most hardworking woman in Hollywood. Because she was in show business. this. What was the three? It was uh, this and um, Mars, Attacks. Mars Attacks. And there was one more shoot. Um, now I am going to be flipping through. Sorry, uh, extreme Measures yes. something called The Substance of Fire. Which The Substance of Fire was the John Robin Bates uh, movie, I believe. Um, sure. Uh, this was, I did a tweet a little while ago where it was like the 90s really loved uh, indie dramas that were like the blank of blank, the weight of water, the substance of fire, the safety of objects. Um, there was a bunch of them. There was like, it was more than just four. It was like, there was, I needed multiple tweets to, uh, get through them. Wait, sometimes when I'll do a tweet that's just like an image, I'm like, damn it, I'm never going to be able to find this again. Um, <laughs> the business of strangers. The business of strangers, although that was a little bit, um, later than that. About 99. Or 2000, I think, even. Um, sure. Let's see. The End of Violence, which was uh, Vim Vendors, I'm pretty sure. The Myth of Fingerprints, which is Bart Freundlich, maybe? Um, yes. Uh, the Weight of Water, which is Catherine Bigelow. The House of Yes, of course. Parker Posey in The House of Yes. The Safety of Objects. The Substance of Fire. The Theory of Flight, remember? Kenneth Branagh, Helena Bonham Carter, The Theory of Flight. And then I. Ex- this sounds like a great trivia round. And then I included, which was like several years later, but The Shape of Things, the uh, the Neil LeBute yes. movie, The Shape of Things. So uh, it was a genre unto itself, that is for sure. Okay. The First Wives Club, though. Yes. I would have been a tender nine years old. Sure. If you had asked nine year old me yes. what his favorite movie was. I would tell you that it was the first wives. It's Club. a great movie. I th- okay. Who is your best in show of the first wives? Club? Oh man, yeah. Um, of the central, can I at least separate the central trio? Yeah, I I would I would be surprised if your best to show is someone who's not in the central trio. But go for it. I mean, maybe actually the my favorite performance in the movie is outside of the oh, trio, and it. it's Maggie Smith. I mean, Maggie Smith is giving you everything you expect and want out of Maggie Smith in that. She is, she is the, the, uh, the queen of New York society. She is uh, uh, Donna Murphy in the Gilded Age, but uh, in, uh, in contemporary times in that. Yeah, she's fantastic. Of the main trio, though, how do you, who, do you, who do you gravitate to? Diane. I think I'm a Goldie boy. I do not want to slight Bette Midler. I think Bette Midler uh, has some fantastic lines. I think she is... Um, and also she has the line, of course, that uh, that Jennifer Lawrence quotes in her Golden Globe speech. What does it say? It says, I beat Meryl. Um, I wanted to spotlight the one moment in the write-up where it quotes... It talks about how Goldie Hawn and Diane Keaton became such close friends. And and I want to quote it exactly because it's really interestingly, it's not phrased as a dig, it is not phrased as intrigue, and yet it made me raise an eyebrow. And she said, um, 
Han, who away from her home in L.A. during the three-month Manhattan shoot, made a new best friend in Keaton. Quote, Diane and I would get made up together, whereas Bette would be made up in her trailer. So much bonding goes on in that trailer. End quote. Pregnant pause. (laughs) Interesting. So are we left to infer that Goldie and Diane were, you know, thick as thieves, and maybe Bette was a little bit standoffish? I don't know. I'm just saying. I think back to Bette talking about, is it Shelley Long who she talked about on Oprah that she hated when they made Outrageous Fortune? She's talked... I mean, that's who's in Outrageous Fortune. Right. But I believe that's, I believe that, I believe that is correct. I don't think she and Shelley Long got along uh, very well on that show, or on that, uh, in that movie, which is a great movie. I love that movie. Um, but, like, made me that. raise an eyebrow. An eyebrow went up, is what I will say. Well, because, like, this is one of those movies that, like, had, like, that reputation that still follows it of, like, everyone making it hated each other. It was such <laughs> a disastrous production, whatever, that it's, like, oh, actually getting our grubby little hands on these things to see where maybe some of the origin sure. of that legend is super fascinating. Yes, But at the same time... I think everybody walked away from that movie happy because they all made a shit ton of money. I was going to say, it's incredibly successful and, uh, you know, it's incredibly watchable. I think all three of those actresses come across fantastically out of that movie. And they it probably mm-hmm. made them, got them a whole bunch of great offers coming off it. Or at least like, and I know that like, Hollywood fucking sucks and would not does not reward women the way they would reward men. If men had a success on the level of the First Wives Club, they would have made a ton of much, you know, much more money than the women of the First Wives Club did. But I imagine like Goldie gets the Banger Sisters, you know, because of, you know, the box office might that she gets from something like the First Wives Club. I don't know. I just feel like I want I want to feel like that was great for their careers because it was such a successful movie. Right. Uh, we talked we talked about this when Adam was on the general and it's like not a unique thought but the general attitude yes. towards women yes. uh that permeates the issue especially when talking about the mirror has two faces. I was going to say the mirror has two faces they were very shady towards Barbara where they were like oh was there strife on the set and people were fired and and b- the budget ballooned must be a Barbara Streisand movie like first of all shut up second of all yeah first of all fuck you yeah. <laughs> second of all well and i'm glad that they at least included the Mimi Rod quote where she was just like yeah she's demanding but she has fantastic taste so we were you know happy to follow her and like i'm like barbara does certainly seem particular and i imagine you know working on a set where that many people get fired is probably an adventure in and of itself but also i don't know it, there's a there's a, a great movie. It, it's a two and a half hour long Zapruder film where you want to like watch it frame by frame and discuss every bit of minutia that is kind of bizarre throughout the whole movie, including how hard the movie sells us on how plain and unattractive Barbara Streisand is supposed to be from the jump when she is absolutely stunningly gorgeous. I will say, the off-Broadway play Byron Seller, which is a fictionalized uh, imagining of what if somebody, uh, what if a gay man got a job working in Barbara Streisand's basement mall, uh, is actually a work of phenomenal criticism about the mirror has two faces and like really gets into the psychology 
of that movie in an incredibly intelligent way. I will say that was my first thought after watching that movie. It was like, wow, Byron Seller really nailed it. So um, uh, great for that play. I wanted to back up, uh, though, back into September. Uh, Night Falls on Manhattan, which was a Sidney Lumet movie starring Andy Garcia. Probably a movie that we could do. I don't believe it got any Oscar nominations. Um, legal drama, sort of hard-boiled legal drama uh, starring Andy Garcia. Sort of an artifact of an earlier time. It was very much out of place in the 90s when legal dramas were more of the Grisham variety than like The Verdict or something like that, right? Um, but the little tidbit that I pulled out of this that they sort of kind of toss off is that Richard Dreyfus, who plays uh, an attorney, uh, maybe the district attorney, I don't know, in Night Falls on Manhattan, had attended the OJ trial. And at the time, people were like, why is Richard Dreyfus in the gallery of the OJ trial? And they're like, well, now we have the answer to that. He was researching for his role in this movie, which, like, fantastic. Like, way to pull together all of the great uh, 90s moments. Um uh, that we're going to pull the OJ trial into this. That was fantastic. Have you ever seen Night Falls on Manhattan? No, but it is a very distinct poster in my mind. Yeah. It's like if a poster was shot by Roger Deakins. I feel like that like... was a trailer that I got on a lot of VHSs that I rented at the time was Night Falls on Manhattan. Um, uh, One thing I wanted to pull up from one of the sidebars, from one of the uh, additional movies sidebar, because it was a very small movie, but it was the uh, the British film Beautiful Thing, which is a sort of good movie, adolescent queer coming of age kind of thing. Really lovely, really cute. Has a lot of Mama Cass uh, music in it, which is fantastic. Um, the write up of it, I literally was like, I literally did like the vixen, like nope, too vague, where I was reading it, where literally it's <laughs> described as a British teen finds love with his boarding school neighbor. Like, I believe you are omitting some key detail here, Entertainment Weekly, about the plot of Beautiful Thing at a time when there were not a lot of coming-of-age movies about little gay boys. So, uh, I don't know, do better. Maybe the maybe the, the movie itself was slow-playing that and did not let anybody know the particulars of what it was about. No, it's a it, it's it's an obviously gay movie. No, but what I'm saying is maybe before anybody had seen it, the oh, uh, the, oh like it was it was like partly a like like the distributor uh, like gave them a log yeah. line to go on and they and and ew that's all really ew had to go on because sometimes they've seen these movies but sometimes they haven't sometimes they're only going off of what the studio is it giving had premiered them. at Cannes so like, oh well then people would have known no that it was gay yes all right but, but again it's a small movie so it's like average yeah. moviegoer doesn't know sure that. but again. All the more reason to be accurate in in describing it, because otherwise I'm maybe not going to seek out a movie that's a British teen finds love with his boarding school neighbor if I don't know that it's uh, about a queer British teen. All right. Um, The English Patient was an interesting movie to pick apart in this issue because it shows up both as a a write-up in and of itself. It was an October movie, I believe, an October Mm -hmm. release. Um, And in that write-up, they're kind of muted about it. They're like, we don't know a ton about it. It's based on this book, but we don't know what the buzz on it's going to be. And it's only in that Oscar buzz sidebar that they talk about it. They're much more confident in that sidebar. I imagine those two things were written by two different writers. Uh, the sidebar is much more confident that it's going to be an Oscar player, that Miramax uh, is a very good Oscar operator. and it's November. All right, November, even better, yes. But I will say either way, 
the English patient as a cultural phenomenon was not uh, was not evident yet in this issue. The fact that like the English patient, which would go on to be like the plot of a Seinfeld episode, it was that much in the popular culture, was definitely not present yet, or it wasn't forecasted either. So um, that I think is very interesting. That at this point, even if you would imagine it's like an Oscar contender. I don't think anybody imagined that it would be the dominant Oscar force of that year. Well, that's what's so fascinating about looking on these. Like, the most interesting stuff can be the, like, omissions of what actually becomes the stories, too. Like, I mean, we talk so much of this issue is, like, a lot of this stuff ended up disappointing, but that, I think, is also the trade-off in that, like, the mirror has two faces blurb doesn't even mention Lauren Lauren Bacall. Right. And like as far as awards were concerned or like major narratives were concerned, it was all about Lauren Bacall. She's a parenthetical uh, in my it. My favorite one. I Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um I just have to read this one in full <laughs> of this major cultural phenomenon. Yes. Uh scream. What better name for a Wes Craven flick formerly called Scary Movie this Christmas Day stocking stuffer? follows high schoolers Drew Barrymore and Nev Campbell, right. parenthetical party of five, who are being stalked by a sociopath, another parenthetical. Courtney Cox plays a reporter. This movie is very self-referential, says says Craven, because not only is it scary, it's about kids who like scary movies. That's it. The movie is literally referred to as a stalking stuffer, and it would entirely revolutionize an entire genre. Well, it's it's listed as a December 25th release, and now I want to look up and see as if that release date was bumped up, because I feel like I remember it coming out a little bit earlier than that. No, it's only... I mean, I, maybe a few days but just It's just a few like days. Uh, Wikipedia because says December it, 20th. Yeah. It didn't make a lot of money its first weekend. Like, it became a success over the following weeks by word of mouth. Right. Uh, Another one similar to that. Well, and I also, it's interesting that they mentioned, like, they make it sound like Drew Barrymore is the lead, but that was, of course, by design. The Dimension was very intentional about not letting you know that Drew wasn't going to be in most of the movie. Um, So it's interesting to look back at that as a time capsule. I also, similar to that, though, was the um the write-up for jerry Maguire, which is in the middle of the december the december preview they don't really know enough about it when at the end when they when they sum up the buzz on it they said the buzz is surprisingly little production was eerily quiet um they only mentioned cuba gooding jr in passing very similar to what you said about lauren mccall cuba gooding jr of course goes on to win the oscar um it is. It ends up being the only Best Picture nominee from a major studio, and the buzz on it was very shrouded at this point. So I wonder if in this year where all the big studio Oscar stuff faltered, it helped that Jerry Maguire was a surprise. Mm-hmm. Was something that wasn't very known, that didn't have a ton of weight of expectation on it. And Yeah, and it got to be feel like more of an organic success because that movie made more than mission impossible did that year right Uh, we'll get into it um okay (laughs) we will get into it uh i want to talk about box office later i wanted to shout out their write-up on 101 dalmatians the uh, live action 101 dalmatians which correctly predicts the dragginess of glenn close's performance (laughs) that essentially is just like this is a performance that drag queens will uh commemorate for years to come and i'm like 
not wrong. Like it's mostly that Glenn's the one doing the drag in this, but uh, uh, I'm glad that they shouted that out. Uh, they were also correct in predicting what Shine would end up doing. Shine had been a Sundance movie that mm-hmm. year and had gotten some buzz there, but it's still incredibly small and nobody. Shine also got People's Choice at Toronto, right? Oh, is that right? That one? I think so. I would believe it. Because I was confused by that because I didn't remember Shine as being a Sundance movie. I remembered it as being a Toronto movie. Well, give me one second. Won the People's Choice at the Toronto International Film Festival. Very good. Uh, world premiered at Sundance, and I don't know if it won anything at Sundance, but yeah, so it played Interesting. both. So, yes, but they correctly compared that one to My Left Foot, which, uh, you know, both of those would end up winning Best Actor, so well done, well well uh, uh, positioned there by Entertainment Weekly. Good job. Um, I singled out Mother Night, the Nick Nolte uh, movie, Mother Night, based on the Kurt Vonnegut novel, because... I, I love finding out a movie that I didn't know existed exists. Mother Night was another one of those movies that I saw as a trailer on a lot of VHSs that I was renting around then for whatever reason. Um, it's Nick Nolte plays essentially. If you've not read the the Vonnegut novel or haven't seen the movie, Nolte plays um, uh, an American spy in Nazi Germany who ends up uh, is a propagandist for the Nazis while also um or maybe he's not american i don't know anyway he's a, he's a he's a nazi he's a propagandist for the nazis who is secretly funneling information to the allies to take down the nazi regime but he's so successful as a propagandist that ultimately uh after the war people uh are after him and the the message of the movie is essentially summed up as you know be careful who you pretend to be because we are who we pretend to be and the idea is he did so much more harm as a successful propagandist that any you know spy work that he was able to do was undone you know or was outweighed by all of the like you know what he contributed to the Nazi party in this so anyway the trailer sort of sums this up, and I'm fascinated by this. I am in my late teens. I am, <laughs> I am, I fancy myself a very sort of like brainy kid. I wasn't like super into Vonnegut, but I had read, uh, we had read Slaughterhouse Five in high school, and I had read maybe another uh, Vonnegut or two around then. And so I was like, this is a smart movie with a really, I was very susceptible to. And I say susceptible, it's not like Mother Night's a bad movie, but it's just a movie that nobody really saw. I was like, I'm the only person I know who's seen this movie. Um, But I was very much, you could hook me with a really clever idea. Uh, That's why I was very into that movie, The Last Supper. Did you ever see that movie? Um, No. uh, Cameron Diaz is in it. It's about these uh, liberal friends who get together for dinner every week, and one week this sort of... uh, uh, a uh, person whose car is broken down comes uh, happens by them, and he turns out to be this like is it Jesus. No, it's this very sort of like gross, like chauvinist, anti-choice, conservative, like uh, so Jesus Rush Limbaugh type sort of, or like listens to a lot of conservative radio. Yeah, like Jesus. Um, and so, and they end up in an argument, and uh, 
he ends up dead and they bury him in the backyard and then they get the idea that like oh we just made the world a better place by getting rid of this guy so why don't we keep doing this and they end up like casting a net for dr laura schlesinger types and and sort of these like a lot of like late 90s boogeyman types of uh, people who are all up by the way this sounds fantastic yes and so uh courtney b vance is in it uh, cameron diaz is in it ron eldard jonathan penner from survivor it's i believe it's directed by his uh his now late wife stacy title um that was on a lot of trailers back then too i believe it was a miramax movie um but so that was a movie with a really clever hook to it and i'm like i am a very clever person who uh whose you know tastes are now expanding and becoming very i'm getting very into indie film at the time so that really appealed to me and so i the only person i knew in my own little solitude watched mother night and i'm like fascinating and i ended up writing when i was in by the time i got to college i ended up writing i think a paper on it for some class or another like i managed like it was you know that thing where you're in college and they're like write a paper on this and you're like I'm going to find a way to make this thing that I want <laughs> to write, write about. what I actually want to write. I will, like, I will, like, twist and turn to make this movie that I really like fit the assignment so I can write about this movie that I like. Do you know what I mean? Was I the only one who did that kind of thing? Um, but anyway, uh, it was it was amazing to see uh, a movie like Mother Night show up in this write-up. Nolte's very good. It's one of actually my favorite write-ups in this because, A, they spend half of the copy talking about what a reviled movie I Love Trouble is. Yes. And that the director of of Mother Night really uh, uh, oh, had gotten himself cast as an extra in I Love Trouble so that he could uh, float the script past Nick Nolte, which is um, clever again. Clever. A little devious. Nice. Um, Nick Nolte also distinguishes the difference between, and I quote, acting work and star work, reminding you that at one point, Nick Nolte was considered a movie star. Nick Nolte, former sexiest man alive by People magazine. People forget this. Like, Nick Nolte was an A-lister. Yes, he was. Um, Last thing I want to talk about the individual write-ups is, as we hinted at, December's section is headlined... By the Tim Burton movie, Mars Attacks, which was a December release. Seems like it would have been better off in the summer, but I believe this was another one that was delayed um, from a summer release. I know Ransom was another one of those movies that was supposed to be a summer release. Uh, Of course, Mars Attacks famously has 8 billion cast members. It's an incredibly sprawling uh, story. And who are the ones that get the splash page intro in this? Is it... Jack Nicholson as the president or Glenn Close as the first lady? Is it Natalie Portman? Is it um, Sarah Jessica Parker? It's no Annette Benning and Tom Jones, which is a wild corner of that movie to get your lead image from and i do you remember that dana carvey stand up where he talks about seeing tom jones and talks about his dick <laughs> yes and how like large yes. tom jones's penis evidently is yes he refers to it as tom it's, and his jones. it starts singing it's not unusual yeah yeah, yeah. yes yeah. i recall yes i played uh i played tahoe and that was cool across the street tom jones was playing my wife i went oh, I, have you ever seen him he's such a great singer but We went to see him, and it's literally, I'm not kidding, he has a thing in his pants. It's it's ridiculous. It's like this, down to his knee. And no, he doesn't talk about it. And the whole audience is just staring at it. 
it's 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 Tom and his Jones. I'm telling you, it is. It's obscene. It's insane. My wife had binoculars. It's moving, honey. It's moving. It sang a song. You know. Are you ready for this? It was a giant penis. That's what I'm saying. You can't really think of too much else after you watch that uh, that uh, Dana Carvey bit when you see Tom Jones. But yeah, uh, Mars Attacks has eight billion, you know, cameos and weird. Uh, Jim Brown, the former NFL player, is in it. Um, uh, I don't know, eight billion people are in it. But it's it's one of those things where you imagine, you know, going behind the scenes and just be like, Entertainment Weekly probably has a bunch of images from that uh, movie that they were given, and they're like, pick one, and they're like, well, we haven't seen this movie, and we have no way of knowing what is the major parts of this movie and what is not. And so, like, well, Annette Benning's a big star, so maybe this is what's important about this movie. So we put a, uh, Annette Benning and Tom Jones. Maybe they're just trying to hook the Tom Jones demographic i don't know i don't know what was going up but anyway it's oddly appropriate for what the movie is though because that movie is bananas people hated that movie at first and i feel like now especially gay people have come around to it like the type of thing that is uh, campy is not even the right word but the type of bizarre comedy from the late 90s and early 2000s like stepford wives is in like the beginning stages of being re i've i've noticed that about stepford wives people. i will say i saw and mars I attacks, mars attacks is one i saw mars two. attacks once i did not super care for it so i am one of those uh uh, uncultured slobs who who did not appreciate <laughs> Mars Attacks seen it at the as time. an adult, but I do want to watch it. It's interesting that you that you uh, frame it as gay people coming around on it. I see it more as like film film Twitter types coming around it. That it's it's the you know it's the Tim Burton movie that people were too hard on, as opposed to uh, you know later on movies that people were appropriately critical of it's probably a lot closer to what tim burton is doing now yeah. than what he was doing at the time it's probably the fair way i'll to watch it again at some point but I i'll watch it with it. a real raised eyebrow we'll see um you know this is also secretly about going to the movies in columbus the theater that adam brought up yes this was the first movie i saw at that theater oh i love that i love that um i also sort of picked out a, bu- a handful of movies from the also sections or the plus sections that move the ones where it only gets um maybe a paragraph or even just a sentence uh which is it just sort of goes to show how freaking packed the fall of 96 was with important movies and memorable movies. Big Night is on there. Swingers, Looking for Richard, Waiting for Guffman, Bound, Breaking the Waves is in there. Unhook the Stars is in there. Sling Blade, which at this point is titled as a single word, Sling Blade. Um, uh, Scream, as you mentioned, and as we talked about, The Substance of Fire. So a uh, lot of, I mean, Substance of Fire isn't really memorable. I just wrote that in because I wanted to remember to talk about it, which we have. Um, but like, Waiting for Guffman, Swingers, Bound, Big Night, Sling Blade, Scream. These are movies that have persisted and lasted, and people still talk about them and watch them and and praise them. So good for late 96. 96, a year we should talk about more, maybe. We really should. I could go on. Again, we're over the hour mark at this point, but I could talk about it for a while. Uh, also, speci- I like when these old EW preview issues not only talk about movies that had Oscar buzz, but single out performances for buzz that ultimately mm-hmm. does that didn't happen for they mention that alan rickman in michael collins was going to be a contender for supporting actor which 
Sadly, Alan Rickman goes his whole life without ever getting uh, nominated for an Oscar for his acting, which is a bummer because he was so good. And I remember watching Michael Collins and thinking at the time that like, oh, Rickman's fantastic in this. Like, why wasn't he nominated for an Oscar for this? But Michael Collins is another one of those movies that gets a lot of buzz, but ultimately doesn't really come to much. It gets a nomination or two in craft categories. I know it's enough that we can't cover it, which is too bad. Um, Natasha Lyonne gets singled out for the Woody Allen musical, Everyone Says I Love You, on the basis of, well, the last two Best Supporting Actress winners came from Woody Allen movies. Who would it be for third? And they kind of almost like throw a dart at a dartboard, and they're like, well, Natasha Lyonne is supposed to be the narrator of this movie, so maybe it's her. And... We love Natasha Leone, but that obviously uh, did not happen for her or for anybody. And everyone says I love you for that matter. And they also talk about that there was a big push planned to push for Laura Dern and Citizen Ruth in Best Actress, which would have been rad. Talk about movies that are suddenly very timely again. Um, the the abortion comedy Citizen Ruth, which Laura Dern mm-hmm. frickin' rules in that movie. And I don't know. That would have been a good one. She would have already been an Oscar nominee at the point, too, yep. which is the thing that surprised me about Citizen Ruth. I mean, Citizen Ruth is... I am I, I get why Academy voters at the time, who are demographically for older and stuffier than they are now, um, that I could see why they would look at that and be like, no, not not the kind of if you know not the kind of movie that touches on the issue of abortion that we're gonna that we're gonna talk about. So, yes. Um, I mentioned earlier that the couple of the movies that are featured in here ended up getting pushed to 1997. One of them is Donnie Brasco, which would end up getting a screenplay nomination at the 97 Oscars. One of them is The Ice Storm, which we've already covered on this podcast. And it made me wonder what if The Ice Storm had been released in 96 as planned in December of 96. Would things have perhaps fared differently for that movie? Particularly, I will say, in the context of the way 96 was the indie revolution and and Ice Storm fitting very well into that narrative. Do you think it fares better? Possibly. I would also say because, like... There were, I think, maybe at least Sigourney Weaver gets nominated because, like, she's a previous multiple nominee. Yeah. And, like, it's still somewhat surprising that she wasn't nominated given, you know, that movie's track record. But um, I think that is at least feasible, you know, like a known Oscar quantity. Well, and you also think, because Joan Allen, of course, was nominated in 96 for The Crucible. But if Mm -hmm. they had another movie that was maybe, you know, better reviewed than The Crucible was, and in that lead category where you could see, like, Diane Keaton and Marvin's Room getting bumped out for somebody, and and maybe then, instead of feeling like you need to throw a bone to The Crucible and supporting actress, this movie that people didn't really like, maybe instead you nominate Joan Allen in lead for yeah, the ice storm. storm and then maybe you have space to throw in sigourney as well so this is you know and then we don't have an ice storm episode and we do have a crucible episode 
Interesting. Interesting. Because the Ice Storm could also have that adapted screenplay nomination from the Crucible. See? See? All right. This is the this is the fantasy world I want to live in because I would love to do a Crucible episode. What an amazing episode that would be. Um, all right. Anything else from the EW issue before we transition into Ransom? Last thing I want to talk about is the Boys of Wintergrid. Oh, but they please also do. make like a quantifiable. It's basically like Who's young and hot. These are yeah, exactly. These are the young hot actors. Hit me with them. <laughs> Previously mentioned, forgotten actor Jonathan Sheck, who's in that thing who's you in do. That thing you do. Yep. Vince Vaughn, who is in So Winger. Is that Swingers? Do yes, we say swingers? swingers. Yes. Viggo Mortensen, portrait of a lady. Right. Skeet Ulrich. They mention it for touch, but it's for screen. Yep. Billy Crudup, uh, one of the many people in Sleepers, and Toby Maguire for The Ice Storm. Right, which, again, would not uh, come out till the next year. Of those, how do you rank them? Then, in 1996? Then, yeah, 96, yes. Oh, boy. Uh, uh, Skeet Ulrich at the top? Ulrich at the top? All right. I mean... I don't remember anything from Sleepers if I've seen it. Oh, Sleepers was another one of those Joe movies that Joe thought was a very clever idea, so I was very into Sleepers. Uh, bummer of a movie to be very into, by the way. I mean... <laughs> Not a feel-good. Um, yeah, I think... I love that thing you do, so I'll I'll ride for Jonathan Sheck. And uh, Vince Vaughn, uh, dead last, per usual. So, interestingly enough, so Tobey Maguire, we can leave off the board because the Ice Storm doesn't get uh, released till the next year. Viggo Mortensen, even in movies that I saw back then, I didn't really take note of him until I think G.I. Jane was really the movie that I like. Mm-hmm. Re- started realizing that like Viggo Mortensen was like a person whose name I should know. Um, Billy Crudup kind of the same way. It's not until like Almost Famous and Jesus' Son in 2000 that I really start to focus on Billy Crudup, which is too bad because like the headshot that they use for him uh, for sleepers here is gorgeous. Like, Oh boy. He's so fucking <laughs> handsome. Um, I will say um, at the risk of, you know, uh, ruining my reputation. I do not like Vince Vaughn. Now back then I was very kind of hot for Vince Vaughn in the uh, swingers, um clay psycho clay pigeons psycho era like i was kind of really there's a scene in clay pigeons where he's wearing these like white boxer briefs that you can really like you know Ah. it's not leaving a whole lot to the imagination and i was very into that um and like again like i'm not made of stone like jonathan check of course i found super (laughs) hot and also i don't think i was in i certainly didn't see the doom generation when i was a teenager which is too bad because like maybe things for old joe would have turned out differently if i had seen the doom generation earlier but by the time i did see the doom generation i'm like oh yeah like jonathan Sheck's so like dangerously sexy and alluring in that movie so um yes uh, I just sort of... They also compare all of them to a current leading man, which is kind of wild. They compare Skeet Ulrich to Johnny Depp, obviously. which at the time, yeah. obvious, yeah. right? Jonathan Sheck gets compared to Peter Gallagher. It's the eyebrows. Just it's 100% the, the eyebrows. eyebrows. Yep. Billy uh, Crudup to Tom Cruise, which makes sense. To... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris O'Donnell for Tobey Maguire, Jeff Bridges for Viggo Mortensen, and then about made me throw my phone across the room... Vince Vaughn gets compared to Tom 
It's the hairline. It's 100% the hairline. They have the same hairline. That's the only reason to compare Vince Vaughn and Tom Hanks. Like, genuinely. Even, like, at the time, it's not like Swingers made you think, like, ah, Vince Vaughn, the new Tom Hanks. Like, that was never Hanks's vibe. It's such a, it's a weird thing. Um, one last thing I wanted Talk to say. Talk about a real whipped cream and vinegar. Like, those <laughs> two things just do not mix. I did want to mention before we move on, this is, of course, the year of Evita. Evita does get released in this fall. Surprising to me that it does not get a whole lot of attention in this issue. Mm-mm. It was a huge story. The whole production of that movie was a story. Madonna's a massive star. People were like, there was a ton of expectation for that movie. And then her wondering whether she was going to get an Oscar nomination was like a whole thing. She ultimately wins the Golden Globe. It's very surprising to me that this issue really slow played. And maybe this is another thing where like, you know, they were. It was planned. That's exactly what I thought. But yeah. if it was, you know, maybe that was in it in anticipation of Oscar. Maybe, and then it never materialized right. because I don't remember Evita being on the cover of EW. Yeah, um, I'm not sure I ever remember Madonna being on the cover of EW. I don't kind of like either. Ever. Yeah. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Readers or uh, readers. Again, I I trying to do the culture. Gary's. 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 Let us know if you if, if you remember a Madonna cover of EW. Two other rad movies. I just want to shout out. Uh, they're not really. Um, they're talked about enough, but uh, William she- William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet obviously is a fave of both of ours. Uh, perfect movie and does get men- a mention in the monthly Oscar watch. Section. Yes, Claire Danes in particular had, I think, a good bit of buzz for her. Um, and then movie that is uh, equal, not equally, almost equally rad. William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet's a perfect movie. Um, uh, merely fucking rad uh, instead of maybe perfect is Rennie Harlan's The Long Kiss Goodnight, which I rad. unabashedly love. That is a absolutely classic junk cinema movie with um a plus performance by gina davis uh and also great uh, samuel L. jackson and also great brian cox which i've definitely talked about before how much i love brian cox showing up in that movie and being like a uh, irritable secret cia handler guy um so fantastic all right let's at long last Move on to our cover movie here, Chris. We're talking about Ransom. 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 You know, the thing, as like bitchy as they can be about the behind the scenes stuff for movies like First Wives Club yes. and Mirror Has Two Faces, yes. they they bring it up, but they don't like really treat it as juicily as we want them to right. about how this movie was filming ron howard directing mel gibson starring filming as the oscar nominations yes. come out where rob ron howard gets like one of the most notorious or most discussed maybe less so like in the last five years snubs for best director when he's expected to like win the season yep still wins the does he win the DGA or does he win the PGA? I think it's PGA, but once again... I think it might actually be both. Um, or maybe DGA was late enough that he's nominated at both for sure. All right, hold but on. this happens with... And like the person who takes over all of the Oscar heat is the star of his next movie. Which had been... Braveheart had been a 
summer or like late spring. I think it was a spring release actually. Mm-hmm. Cause I remember, yeah. um, uh, I went to, of course, Catholic uh, high school and that was the year we, uh, sophomore year was European history uh, for us. So we were taking European history from a Franciscan priest who, uh, uh, was very fun and we all loved him and he was kind of uh um not quite foul mouthed but like he was like he was a he was a little bit of a rascal and we all really loved him but he i remember him sort of enthusing about how much he loved braveheart and we should all go see braveheart um oh boy um all right apollo 13 let's see producers i mean like the in a way those are both two huge movies that made a shit ton of money and like everyone's dad loves those movies but like in a way they almost couldn't be more different too because like apollo 13 is like americana it's a pg rating like it's a movie for adults but everybody took the whole family to see it braveheart is like an ultra violent historical like drama machismo type of thing where it's like it's homophobic apollo 13 uh, yeah yeah uh, a pretty vile movie um but like apollo 13 is a movie that's almost essentially all men but it isn't like this how dare you slight kathleen quinlan this way um uh, i mean we could talk about kathleen quinlan apollo 13 by the way as you uh pga and dga winner yeah so there we go that's what i thought um but you know, I, Apollo 13 isn't really, like, macho bullshit, right? No, I would say not. Even though it's, like, a dude movie. Right. Listen, they were they were humble enough to admit to Houston that they had a problem. So, who's the toxic masculinity now? Today, yeah. Right. There was an Apollo 13 in the, in the skies. Now, Houston, we don't have a problem. Why do you think we have a problem? Men will literally float into space on a death trap shuttle than to admit to Houston that they have a problem. That is, that is where we're at right now. Yes. All right. So, we don't have a problem. You have a problem. Houston, you have a problem. So, yes. So, this is all going on. The Oscar campaigning is going on while Ransom is being filmed. We'll get into Mel Gibson taking some strategic absences from the production of Ransom to go attend to his uh, his Oscar campaign. But before we do, we're going to... Chris, I'm going to, in a second, give you 60 seconds to sum up the plot of Ransom. But first, I'm going to give y'all the particulars. Uh, this is, of course, 1996's Ransom, directed by Ron Howard, Written by Richard Price and Alexander Ignan, Ignan, sure. Starring Mel Gibson, Rene Russo, Delroy Lindo. Rene Russo, by the way, reteaming with Mel Gibson after a couple of Lethal Weapon movies, reteaming with Delroy Lindo the year after they were both in Get Shorty. So there's that. Uh, Gary Sinise, Lily Taylor, Liev Schreiber, Donnie Wahlberg, Evan Handler. Paul Gilfoyle, Dan Hedaya shows up for one fun little scene. It premiered on November 8th, 1996. Chris, I'm going to pull up my little stopwatch. When you are ready, I'm going to task you with 60 seconds to describe the plot of Ransom. Are you ready? Cool. All right. And begin. 
All right, in Ransom, we're following Tom Mullen. He is a, like, owns a, uh, airline uh, company. Uh, he is super rich. His son gets, uh, kidnapped at, uh, in Central Park. And then the FBI comes in and they're like, blah, 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 blah. We're going to help you take care of this. The kidnappers don't want, uh, the FBI involved, but of course they are. And, uh, you know, whatever they, they get started. Uh, meanwhile, there's, uh, the, Kidnapper was their caterer, played by Lily Taylor. They also have her boyfriend, Gary Sinise, who's an NYPD agent, um, involved as well. Uh, they first try to get the $2 million, but it ends up that two, uh, one of the killers, played by Johnny Wahlberg, who was actually nice to their kid in captivity, uh, ends up getting killed. And uh, Tom realizes, oh, they don't want the money. They want to bleed me dry. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go on TV against the advice of the uh, FBI. And I'm going to say, you know what? We're going to put a ransom on your head to catch you. And you will never see this money unless you turn in my Well, you're not getting the money if you turn in my kid. But somebody else could get the money for turning you in. Anyway, Gary Sinise ends up uh, doing a shootout with the rest of the people uh, that he's kidnapped with, including shooting Lily Taylor, his girlfriend. And it looks like he's the hero. But actually, uh, he Mel Gibson finds out because Gary Sinise comes to his house and the kid gets scared uh, and he puts two and two together and it leads to a bloody shootout in the street and uh, Gary Sinise dies. And that is of course Chris File with the 82 second plot description of Ransom. It took a minute to get it. Listen. It. Kind of like it it tends to do. Yes, I think that's probably true. Um, a movie that I really like, obviously watching it with a critical eye, there's a lot, I think, to pick apart about this movie. I don't think it makes it bad, but I think it like there are reasons why this is maybe a good and fun movie and not like a masterpiece that we sort of, you know, uh, go to the go to the mat for. Surpri- I do think it's one of Ron Howard's better movies, I will say. I do too, and I also feel like it's one of my more favorite Mel Gibson star vehicles. And we don't need to like talk about Mel a ton cuz he is a piece of shit, but like there's other interesting people to talk about. And all, but it's like, but also knowing that, like, granting that Mel Gibson's a piece of shit, I can still watch certain movies that he's in and be like, oh, yeah, he's doing a really good job. Like this, I think Signs is the same way. Like, I'm just not going to sacrifice my, you know, enjoyment of Signs just because Mel Gibson's a piece of shit. That's not my fault. So I had some like and I don't want to seem like I'm the person who because Mel Gibson's a piece of shit and like looking at his casting with a critical eye like I'm doing that intentionally. But like there was a certain believability factor there that I never quite bought and i think you look at some of the other people that they thought about casting people like kevin costner who it's like the type of decision that this character has to make like when he turns his back on like paying out the ransom and he's going to you know he basically becomes a loose cannon right and he you know basically puts his child at risk to turn the plot against his child's kidnappers Mel Gibson is somebody who you, even at that point, believe as a loose cannon. Right. So it's like you lose a lot of that impact. And like, mm, interesting. Another thing about this movie, I think it's shockingly violent. Like, it is for a Ron Howard movie. You do not expect this movie to be as violent and as it and is profane. Like, not that like Ron Howard doesn't do movies with like swear words or whatever, but like this is a really profane. This is this earns its R for sure. It's definitely like post Pulp Fiction violence. Yeah, um, yeah. But there's something about that that like 
actually kind of, I think it is intentionally trying to be shocking because it is this kind of, this movie has a weird relationship with this multimillionaire who like we're supposed to like, but actually I think it is trying to do something that feels a little bit more modern, but doesn't fully get there of like questioning the morality and the ramifications of that powerful man it's mid 90s whereas like maybe a decade later we'd be more uh you'd have a more complicated interesting movie sure i think that's true i think that is but even as it stands and again this is mid 90s popcorn cinema so i i have less of an issue with it being sort of like this like fat meatball down the middle of the plate um (laughs) but i think there's something about like the violence and especially like the violence of the finale where it's like tom mullen has his face covered in blood and such it's not it's less shocking than it should be because it's mel gibson I'll, i'll grant that i would also say though the flip side of that is it's less of a surprise when tom becomes a loose cannon because it's mel gibson but i also feel like it's it does not take the audience very much time to ramp up to that. It, it you cast Mel Gibson because he's good at doing the loose can the loose cannon thing. Whereas right. maybe Costner or maybe like a I don't know like a Richard Gere or something like that would be um wouldn't wouldn't fit into that archetype quite so easily. I also think it benefits from him and Rene Russo having a familiarity with each other. So much chemistry already. Um, mm-hmm. I think they when the write up in the EW write up for this movie, they talked about how on set kind of they were doing a lot of rewriting, and the rewriting wasn't just Richard Price and Ron Howard. It was also Gibson and Rene Russo and Gary Sinise apparently were all sort of part of this rewriting process. They're not credited, obviously, but uh, Russo talks about needing to tinker with her character and have her be a little bit more of an active presence. And I think the movie benefits from she that. Gets that- like a uh, sequence that I left out of my plot description right. and it's almost surprising it's not left out of the movie uh, and you can see how it was like they added maybe this wrinkle to where she tries you know, to make an give end her run more and, to do and approach the can- she she basically breaks from Tom her husband yeah. and she tries to go and uh, rescue the but I think it, even without know. that just in the scenes where it's they're in the apartment and they're sort of deliberating what to do and it's her and Lindo and Gibson and I think one of the one of the areas where the movie really excels is when the movie becomes these three characters working towards the same goal, but at a little bit of like methodical cross purposes where she's not on the same page Mm -hmm. as her husband. And Lindo is sometimes not on the same page as either one of them. And they're sort of having these side conversations with each other and, and there's mistrust in certain angles with it. And I think that's one of the strengths of the movie. I think in a yeah, I, agree. I think it would be easy to sort of glance at this movie and be like Delroy Lindo, great actor in a throwaway role. But I don't necessarily think that's true. I think movies like no. this are so dependent on having a strong performance in that lead investigator, lead FBI agent role that I think Lindo's crucial to what makes this movie so fun. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up because I really agree that like the tension of the movie is so much more interesting and complicated. And it's because he does such a good job of like yeah. 
creating that tension of like what uh, Tom needs to do when he's on the phone with the kidnappers and how like Lindo performs the like miscommunications or like not getting on the same page yeah uh as as this couple he has a really great scene where it's like he's basically begging tom to do what he says because like tom has scared the shit out of him so much and it's like i just don't know if and like you're right it's like exactly always a thankless role and delroy lindo has done so many of these and been so amazing in so many of these roles but, it's an um, interesting part of uh, it's it's a better movie because he's that good. <laughs> it's an interesting era of his career too where like Crooklyn had been 94, Clockers 95, Get Shorty 95, and then this year he's in Ransom and Broken Arrow and Feeling Minnesota and then I remember at this point I was so and when is a life less ordinary? That's around that time too, 97, 97 the next year. He and Holly Hunter it's been so long since I've seen A Life Less Ordinary. That's what I wanted like check in on again, because that was a mess of a movie. But I remember being very interested in that movie. But he and Holly Hunter play, I want to say, Angels. Do you remember specifically who they are in that? I'm honestly not positive I ever saw the movie. I just know it as an MTV Movie Award Best Dance Sequence nominee. I mean, it's uh, it's Danny Boyle, so I should probably uh, uh, check it out. But I do believe, yes, two angels are sent to Earth to check on, to to check in on them, and it's it's Lindo and Holly Hunter. So, like, just on that casting alone, I should watch that movie again. It's been too long. Some certain movies you shouldn't only ever see as a teenager because, like, you don't know shit yet. So, um. But anyway, I remember actively, because also in 97, he's in a very small role in The Devil's Advocate, where he essentially plays this, like, um, uh, I believe it's some sort of, like, voodoo practitioner or whatever, this very kind of, like, uh, stereotypical sort of, like, central casting kind of thing, where um, he's he's benefiting from al pacino devil like getting him out of crimes or something like that i don't know i don't know but i remember being at the time and again i'm only like 17 18 when i see the devil's advocate watching it and being like well that's a misuse of delroy lindo he's too he's too talented to be wasted on a role like that so even then in my like you know just early forming brain about that kind of thing was already able to look at that and just be like, tell Ray Lindo's better than this. So it was a very strong era for him. And obviously he's still giving some of his best work uh, into the 2020s. So it's not like he's lost a step, but that is, I think ransom is one of those underrated roles where you look at it and it's just like, yeah, Delroy Lindo, this movie is not as good if Delroy Lindo doesn't play that role. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to delve into Lily Taylor for a second in your plot description. This is where I was going to go next to. We're basically in lockstep with this movie. I think I I love that. I like when we disagree too, because that's also fun, but I do love when we're in on the same page in this, you kind of girl bossed her up in your plot description where you kind of, uh, placed her at the head of the table of the kidnapping plot. Uh, this is a Gary <laughs> I mean, like plot. she, she is the in with the actual, she is, she's the inside she's... one. She's on the catering squad. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, We're introduced to her by the little kid sort of looking around the party, and he sees her sort of doing catering things, and he focuses in on her neck tattoo. And I was like, that's how you know she's bad. She has a neck tattoo. (laughs) 1996, (laughs) this is how we did things back then. Um, You have a neck tattoo in this New York City high-rise. You don't belong here, Lily Taylor. I will say, on the flip side of the Delroy Lindo thing, where, like, that is a role that's deceptively um more important than maybe you realize it is i think lily taylor is better is overqualified for the role that she's given in this and i think that role could have Uh stood to accommodate more story because she's giving you a great performance in a role that only requires adequacy i mean i would go even further than that i think as much as delroy lindo is doing uh you know incredible work to elevate the movie so is she but like her actual character on the page sucks like it could be it it, like the way that she performs her character arc avoids so many potential uh so much room for error yeah because it's like she's the one who after donnie Wahlberg is killed she has to be the one that's going in and checking on the kid which like being the sole woman in there the movie could try to do some bullshit of being like, well, of course she becomes sympathetic to the kid. She's a woman. Right. But, like, so much of her choices are, like, kind of her actively playing against it. It's like she's almost annoyed that she's, like, feeling for this kid or whatever. Um, <coughs> plus, it's also, like, she's the one who you get the first real look in her eye. Yes. Of the group of kidnappers yes. that it's like, oh, I could turn against this whole group right now and i could actually you know have all this money to myself and and i want to get in again that's another thing that i feel like in a lesser performance it could have been the movie doing the offensive thing of like look at this deceptive woman well and um and she she really avoids that in her acting and i want to put a pin in that notion of you know of what that character might have done to maybe get that uh, ransom money. Because I do want to talk about that in relation to the story, but I don't want to get off of the Lily Taylor thing quite right now, because I think... This is the same year as I shot Andy Warhol. I was going to say, so her career is at a really interesting point here, and we haven't really had a whole ton of opportunity to talk about Lily Taylor on this podcast. And she is somebody who, if you are just a casual uh, moviegoer, or somebody who's not really who wasn't really plugged into, especially indie cinema in the nineties, you might just feel like, Oh, Lily Taylor, like the, you know, she was on six feet under. She's on, she's on that one show now that, uh, outer range show. Um, but anyway, she was an incredibly important actress in indie cinema in the 1990s. So she comes into people's attention. She's in mystic pizza and say anything back to back in 88 and 89 in, um, sort of like supporting roles but people remember her i bet you there are people who probably see her in something and are like oh from say anything like you know there's i think that's still a lot of people's maybe like primary relation point for her and so she then though makes a bunch of indie movies in the early 90s by the time ransom comes out she is just about to get her fourth indie spirit nomination by the time she's 30 like she's um it's she's very much like at the forefront of indie cinema at a time when indie cinema we've talked about this when i've talked about the indie spirit awards before we're like american independent film used to be a 
a community. It used to be a much more mm-hmm. sort of like tangible thing, like a, a smaller. We used to be a real country. Basically, yes. Um, and so she's in a bunch of movies that I've actually not seen that get nominated for Independent Spirit Awards. Something called Bright Angel in 1990, Household Saints in 93, Addiction in 95, which is an Abel Ferrer movie where she plays a vampire. Um, and then a movie in 96 called... I've heard that movie is real fucking cool. <laughs> I'd like to see it after reading it about it. And she's in a movie in 1996 called Girlstown, which is a bunch of like uh, female friends that includes Anjanou Ellis, recent Oscar nominee, and uh, the girl who played Callie in Dangerous Minds, which I feel like is a mm-hmm. reference you will uh, you will know because you and I... Absolutely. Uh, talk about Dangerous Minds a bunch. So, like, and this is also, she had been in a couple Altman movies. She's in Shortcuts. She's in Pret a Porter, of course. Um, and then, as you mentioned, 96 is the big one for her. She's in I, I Shot Andy Warhol. She gets a lot of uh, attention for that. She gets a bunch of. I would say one of the performances of the decade. She's phenomenal. <laughs> she's she plays unreal. Valerie Solanas in that. Uh, she's the I in, uh, in I, I Shot Andy Warhol. Uh, the the Warhol in that is Jared Harris. Am I right? Yes. yes. I always sometimes get yes. that confused because it's it's Bowie who plays Warhol in Basquiat, maybe? I haven't seen Basquiat. I could be wrong. Gary's let me know if I'm wrong. Um, But yeah, so uh, I shot Andy Warhol. Like, Indie of Indies, it's a, it, it, Mary Heron directed it. It played Cannes. But she gets, like, nominated for the Chicago Film Critics Award for Best Actress. She gets... Um, a, what else does it get? Sorry, I'm like scrolling down. Uh, she's a runner up for National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Actress that year. She wins the Sundance Prize for acting that year. She wins Best Actress at the Stockholm Film Festival. So it's not like she's not on the cusp of an Oscar nomination for that, but it's like, again, when indie cinema kind of meant something, it was an indie triumph and so she at that point there was this like handful of actresses who sort of defined indie cinema in that era and it's like parker posey lily taylor uh kind of iliana douglas a little bit kind of jennifer tilly a little bit um to sort of a lesser extent um but i remember lily taylor and parker posey especially sort of loomed very large at this point so that's sort where she's at when she gets cast in ransom this is a big studio movie and this is kind of a little bit of a cashing in some chips really um in that she's now kind of leveling up in visibility also around this time i think it's a couple years later she's in an episode of the x files that's very very good that i remember um being one of my early sort of uh, windows into Lily Taylor. But she's an incredibly just captivating presence. She has a sort of demeanor and a manner of speaking about her that is, it's tough to pin down what exactly it's giving you, but there is, um, I don't know, there's a lot of inner, you can tell there's a lot going on beneath the surface of any mm-hmm. character that she plays. And she's almost always really, really captivating. And she's great in this. She won uh, one of the one of our favorite awards we haven't been able to talk about in a while. She won Favorite Supporting Actress Suspense at Blockbuster Entertainment. I want to talk about that because, unfortunately, the IMDb does not list who the other 
nominees were that year, which is too bad because I would right. love to see who the other uh, who the other ones. Yes, but that she and Mel Gibson. What weird things they categorized as suspense. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I want to read some of the other winners from that Blockbuster Entertainment Awards because it's no less fascinating, especially when you get into things like supporting actresses. Like Blockbuster, because it's Blockbuster, it's so mainstreamy. You would think like it's all leads and it's all superstars, and it's not surprising that Mel Gibson wins a Blockbuster Entertainment Award for Ransom, but it's surprising that they even know who Lily Taylor is at the Blockbuster Awards. Um, Favorite supporting actress romance that year is Stalker Channing in Up Close and Personal. Favorite supporting actress drama is Juliette Lewis in The Evening Star, a movie we have covered on this. Favorite supporting actress comedy romance is Renee Zellweger in Jerry Maguire. Favorite supporting actress, straight comedy, is Diane Weist for The Birdcage. Rad little choice there. Somebody's got to like her best, and it was Blockbuster, who was the somebody. (laughs) Um, Favorite supporting actress, adventure drama, Ellen Barkin for The Fan. So see, you slighted The Fan, Chris, earlier in this podcast, and Blockbuster is here to tell you that you are wrong, that Ellen Barkin uh, is, is deserving. Uh, so that's already what? One, two, three, four, five, six different supporting actress categories. This is kind of an award show after our own heart, Chris, right? Six supporting actress categories. Maybe for our 200th episode, we should come up with six <laughs> different supporting actress categories. I would do that. Um, okay, I will write that down. I, I, we'll I won't doing... keep going. You heard it for, here first, listeners. On our upcoming 200th <laughs> episode, we will have six supporting actress categories. I won't go through all the other supporting actor uh, winners, except to say that Brad Pitt tied supporting actor science fiction for 12 Monkeys, a role that he was Oscar nominated for, with Jonathan Frakes in Star Trek First Contact. So... Role he was also he was also Oscar, Oscar nominated, nominated for. for yes yes um all right anyway uh, backing up Lily Taylor yeah so the thing that you mentioned that it, this movie could have accommodated a more beefed up role for Lily Taylor perhaps as somebody who you know her eyes her eyes are doing a lot of work when you see her is she wondering is she going to turn on Sinise is she going to uh, take that take that reward money that Gibson's offering for herself. One of the things about this movie that it's not like it makes me not like the movie, but I always sort of twig to it, which is the big hooky thing about this movie. The thing that's in the trailer, the thing that like makes this movie memorable is the fact is the moment where Gibson goes on TV and he offers that this is the $2 million, Mr. Kidnapper, and you're never going to see it. Instead, I'm offering it as a reward on your head. Yeah, and it's and it ultimately yeah, that's one of those things of it, it's funny because the this EW issue has a little grid where they rate the trailers for things yes. and they give the ransom trailer an A for that and it's yeah. like but it gives away the big like the big giant like gag of the movie I, but I get why it does though because that's the thing that gives the movie the hook and you want to be able to hook the audience and I get that my problem with it is it doesn't ever bear fruit in the movie you never see anybody you never see a moment where like somebody on the street maybe like you know pursues somebody you never see the actual thing that gibson's character wants which is other people to go on the hunt for these kidnappers the the well in the next scene they doesn't like lindo say yeah we've received a bunch of bullshit calls about and that's the extent of it like ultimately 
in terms of the function of the plot, Gibson doing that is essentially amounts to a stall tactic more than anything. Maybe, yes, it does sort of like cause Sinise and his team to fray at the seams a little bit. Yeah, that final shootout doesn't happen without it. Like, the movie's also kind of backed in a corner because, like, they don't really have a single lead on who has this kid. Right. I just feel like that, that for being such a sort of jaw dropper of a twist and especially in a movie like ransom where ultimately a movie like ransom is a what would you do movie which is it's saying to the audience picture yourself in the shoes of gibson and russo's characters what would you do would you pay the ransom would you go to the cops would you you know take this into your own hands would you ever be so uh, bold and perhaps reckless as to do what gibson does and ultimately it's such, you know, it's, I wrote down in my notes, I'm like, uh, I, Tom Mullen's stunt queen, because like, it's such a stunt queen kind of a move. And yet it ultimately, he has all of the money splayed out on the table. Yeah. Ultimately, though, it doesn't bear as much fruit within the movie as to be, as to be fit what a gag it is in, in the trailer. Do you know what I mean? Or even in like the, mm-hmm. in the script as you're reading the, as you would read the script for this. But I thought maybe that's an area where you could have given Lily Taylor more to do because she's obviously giving you a lot and she's obviously giving you more complexity than the movie ultimately asks of her, which is too bad. Right. Also that entire criminal team is incredibly well cast. Like Liev Schreiber is obviously a great actor. Evan Handler, he's the hot one. What's that? Evan Handler's the one with the soul patch. Right. Donnie Wahlberg is the the token, the nice, the nice one. kidnapper. He's the. Did you ever watch Gem and the Holograms? Uh yes. Okay, so remember how the 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 misfits. Uh, it's Pizzazz and Roxy, and then Stormer. <laughs> and Stormer was always the one who would like be tempted to like do the right thing or she would like be the one who's like the nicest of the bad guys the one who's sort of like uh who's whose resolve for being a villain is is perhaps the weakest uh uh, donnie Wahlberg is the stormer of this, this particular band right uh, and why is Donnie Wahlberg there in on this plot? I guess it's because he's... they need someone to be the expendable guy. Yes. Where he goes in the first visit with Tom, where Tom thinks he's going to get the kid back if he gives the money, but really they yes. haven't explained that to him. So it's like, if somebody's going to be in danger, we'll just make it be Donnie Wahlberg. I also give the script credit for the fact that you have a criminal team with one woman on it and she's not the softy. She's not the one whose like instincts are to be nice to the kid. She's actually the opposite. She's the one who is most apt to be kind of an itchy trigger, trigger finger because she wants to like get this over with and and she's her own experiences. They talk about her having been like abused as a child and whatever. And she's more willing to be kind of cutthroat about this, which I was like for 1996, um, you know, that's at least a little, a little bit of a zig when we might've zagged. It could have been more of that. Well, yes, certainly. And I think we both uh, would have wanted it that way. Just like there could have been more of like Gary Sinise is playing this corrupt cop and then it's like the ending. The ending, I was a little bit like, well, they don't actually have any evidence against Gary Sinise's character. It's just like, well, that's why that's why it's so much cleaner that he dies. This movie really like double bags it too, where they want to have the moment where uh, 
where Gibson gets the jump on him, but they don't want to have your hero commit murder at the end of the movie. So Gibson has to be holding the gun on him and not shoot him. But you also kind of, and this is where it starts to seem maybe a little focus groupy, is they're like, well, you don't want your hero to be a pussy, so you don't want him to not shoot him. So instead... Uh, we'll have him tackle him through a window. Play glass window. And then, so Sinise is there. He's got the glass sticking out of his neck. So he's going to die of that. And it's not enough that Gibson doesn't shoot him and just lets him die of the glass shard in his neck. But Sinise also has to pull out one of his like 20 guns that he has to try and shoot. Right. And then the police gun him down. So it really is the the movie really makes sure that you know that, you know, maybe Gibson was going to shoot him, but he doesn't have to, but he still goes down in a hell of bullets. Like, all right, okay. Um, Very violent film. Very also very traumatic film. because, like, I saw this movie when it came out, and it has a child bound and, like, scary-looking. Like, they send the grainy video footage to uh the mullins which yeah. by the way didn't mention wanted to get it in my plot description when that is emailed to them they first get a phone call that an automated voice says you have an email was that a Gag. thing uh, like... ransom says it was a thing <laughs> um i want to talk about rené rené russo for a second queen rené russo who um comes up comes up big in all the moments where she needs to come up big in this movie i yes the scene where the scene that's in the trailer the scene that's in it's the most you know known scene from this movie where only the first time uh mel gibson would be heard screaming on a phone right uh it's the one that ends with give me back my son obviously so it's uh gibson's yelling at sinise and trying to talk to the son on the phone, and uh, Lindo is listening in, and Rene Russo is listening in, and she wants to get on the call, and Gibson's antagonizing Sinise, and Sinise shoots the gun, and then hangs up the call, and everybody screams, and she screams, and they all think that he's shot the son, and the editing, actually, for as much as, like, Ron Howard is not really known as a technical virtuoso, and this is, like, it's not reinventing the way that we like film things, but I loved the fact that it's these whip pans that like keep cutting from one location to another where it's like, Lindo. it gives the sensation of all these people being in one space in the same room. And it's so kinetic and it's happening as like, uh, James Horner's music is going off and crazy and Gibson's give me back my son. And it's all of that. And it's just incredibly. And again, popcorn cinema of the nineties. It's just incredibly you know, exciting and visceral and I'm in the moment and I'm really into that. But Russo rules in that the way she's like, you know, she's so, uh, her terror is so uh, palpable at that moment. And, you know, she slaps Gibson and it's again, fat meatball down the middle in the sink. She's puking in the sink. She's, you know, you'd kill them. And, and it's, it's really good. Renee Russo, I should mention is her, is in the like heyday of her career. You look at her on IMDb though, she only has 28 feature film credits in her entire career, which wow. is right? Like she's been around for a very long time and and to only have 28 titles uh as feature film credits is pretty shocking and she's not really done it's not like she's gone and like done a ton of TV either. So it's really kind of a really kind of lean uh, IMDb list. She's um, in Major League in 1989. That's her feature film 
uh, debut, more or less. Um, she's in something called Meanwhile in Santa Monica that I don't... Uh, might be a short, actually. But anyway, um, she's most... She's uh, noticed earliest in... Uh, introduced in Lethal Weapon 3 at that point. She's in In the Line of Fire. She's the the fellow agent, but she's also kind of... It's one of those bullshitty early 90s things where... Uh, Rene Russo, she's on the team, she's a professional, she's got a gun, but she's mostly in the story to be Clint Eastwood's love interest and in The Line of Fire, which is kind of a bummer. Um, I think the first thing I really uh, noticed her in, 95 is a big year for her. She's in both Outbreak and Get Shorty. She rules in both of them. Um, she's probably my favorite person in Outbreak. Of course, I would totally watch a movie that had like six major male cast members and one major female and who's my fave it's like i all of my focus is on renee russo (laughs) and outbreak outbreak is another classic uh 80s or sorry classic mid 90s blockbuster cinema um but like so this is the the thick of it for renee russo is right now at this point in her career outbreak and get shorty in 95 ransom and tin cup in 96 lethal weapon 4 in 98 Thomas Crown Affair in 99, and then it all comes crashing down when she plays uh, uh, Natasha in The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Which. Oh, that, God, I forgot that's what it was. Robert De Niro got to keep making movies after Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, but like it really kind of starts. She's still in movies, but again, like she doesn't get interesting roles. She's in. Barry Sonnenfeld's Big Trouble. She's in Showtime with De Niro and Eddie Murphy. She's in Two for the Money with Pacino and McConaughey. She's in a bunch of movies where the poster is two male movie stars and she's third build. And so imagine how interesting her role in those movies must be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she's She and Dennis Quaid are both raising a bajillion kids in yours, yours mine, and ours in 2005. <laughs> And then she's not in another feature movie after 2005 until Thor in 2011. Which, I mean, casting her as uh, 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 a space Greek queen. Space Viking. She's a space Viking. Yeah. Space Viking queen lady. Renee casting. And she's, and you can tell that those movies for as much as, you know, there are a bunch of underwritten female roles in the Marvel movies, but by the time they do Thor the Dark World, you can tell that they're like, we have Renee Russo, we should probably beef up this role a little bit. And they give her, you know, they give her a fight scene in Thor the Dark World. They give her a big sort of, uh, a bunch of like, she get, she and Portman get to have a scene together. She gets, you know, these big emotional scenes with both Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston in that movie. Like, Thor the Dark World, for as much as people hate on that, like, if nothing else, it is a movie that is like, ah, we have Renee Russo. We should probably get as much out of her as we possibly can. Um, Nightcrawler is the year after that movie. She gets acclaimed for that. For as much as people bitch and moan about Gyllenhaal not getting nominated, I would have rathered her. That movie doesn't so. work without her performance, I don't think. Like, I get, I get the people that love Gyllenhaal in that movie, but like, I think that movie is what it is. It like what the movie's actually like saying. Yep. If she's not as like, if you don't have someone who's going to play the like corruption or like the, and, and like you could talk about what that movie does to that character, but like mm. she plays it so incredibly well. Yeah. Um, 
she's also in another uh, Dan Gilroy movie in 2019, Velvet Buzzsaw, which um, is not a movie I think about very much. But I remember thinking, like, I'm glad that this weird little movie exists. It's a Netflix movie, so nobody saw it. But um, it's interesting that they, you know. And it has no uh, cultural imprint whatsoever. Right. That's sort Because of, it's yeah. a Netflix movie. Yes. Um, but her she's in jill and halls in that uh tony collette's in that weird little movie uh weird little horror movie about that but also uh she's in once again with de niro she starred with de niro kind of a lot in her career uh mm-hmm. in the intern she's his love interest in the intern she's in a movie called just getting started in 2017 where that's almost like uh what have we learned from the early 2000s well now Rene Russo is third build in a movie with two male movie stars, but now on the poster, it's Morgan Freeman and Tommy Lee Jones, but Rene Russo also gets to be on the poster. So this is the evolution that we've made it. This is this is also the other trivia category I want you to do, which is the like movies about two or more old guys. Yep. Oh yeah. And that's that's the thrust of the movie. Yeah. So you know, justice for Rene Russo forever and ever, I feel like. Um I think she's really good in this movie. I think the thi- one of the th- ransom's not ransom. Ransom's not as good as it is if all of these cast members are not sort of doing exactly what you want them to do. Sinise right. is the only one where I'm like, and maybe this is just that I'm like not a huge Gary Sinise person, but I would have loved somebody I'm more into as you know as the guy in that role. But I don't think this is a complicated. I don't think. I mean, maybe he's miscast in the way that I think. Gibson's a little miscast in this movie that it's like it make it makes some of it like muddied. It just feels like he's playing this like sneering guy. Whereas like I actually love Gary Sinise in Apollo 13, where it's like he actually gets the more complicated, unexpected from Gary Sinise type of arc. Whereas like everything he's pretty much doing in this is like pretty expected. I mean, except for, you know, monologuing about the time machine. This is secretly a miniseries about uh, various iterations of the time machine. Yeah. I forget. What is his uh, Apollo 13 role? He's the one who tests positive, not for the novel coronavirus, but for like, we think you're going to get the flu in space. <laughs> That's right. Go on the right. And ship. he's got to stay. Bill Paxton mission goes and Bill Baxton gets the flu in space. <laughs> Irony. Uh, Ron Howard's like makes you think, doesn't it? Um, did we mention, by the way, that the kid in this is Nick Nolte's kid in real life? Speaking of Nick Nolte. Yeah, speaking of Nick Nolte. Big, yeah, big fall for uh, Nick Nolte. He's in Mother Night and his kid is in the bigger movie. Uh, I forgot in- how really terrifying it was to see that kid tied up in the way that he is in it's, this movie. The duct tape over his eyes is really unsettling. Yeah. That was Siskel's actually big complaint about this movie. I watched a lot of Siskel and Ebert in, pre- in preparation for this episode. <laughs> uh, Siskel really hated how much of the uh, the movie showed of like the violence and the menace towards the kid. And I remember there's a quote in the EW issue where, or no, it's an IMDb trivia fact, sorry, where it says that initially they wanted Alec Baldwin for the Sinise role, but Baldwin didn't do it reportedly because he said he objected to the uh, scenes about the violence towards the kid, which is, I made a note in our uh, rundown, <laughs> that same year he made that movie The Juror, where I'm pretty sure he menaces to me more in her child. So, um, I don't know, it's interesting. Baldwin 
also not a great person, uh, would have been much better, especially at this time, for that role than Sinise. It would have been a surprise. Like, Gary Sinise shows up in this movie, and it's supposed to be like an aha, a twist. He's part of the bad guys in this movie. And it's supposed to be a surprise, and it's not a fucking surprise. Like, Well, except that he had been playing pretty much exclusively good guys in his career at this point. He's coming off of Forrest Gump, Apollo 13. He was on The Stand. He's like the main guy in the miniseries version of The Stand that was on ABC. Um, Where it's all like heroes, and yet you look at him and it's just like, well, you kind of look like a son of a bitch, don't you? Just like, you kind of... Yeah, but the movie, to its credit, does not waste a lot of time making you wonder about him. Basically, the the first scene we see him in He's acting kind of sketch in a bodega. And I think we're initially supposed to think like he's a cop and he's going to figure this out. And he's following Donnie Wahlberg back to the lair. And then at the end of that scene, you find out, oh, no, he's actually the main guy. But this is still very early on in the movie. And the movie doesn't waste a whole lot of time making us guess at it, which that's that's nice. I feel like that's good. So I do feel like this is a movie that gets a lot of plot in yeah in two hours in a way that was like surprising to me like i feel like you could get the same movie for two and a half hours now and yeah there you i don't know something about like the economy of the storytelling which is why I I, i mentioned i do think it's one of ron howard's better movies like i feel like the way that people talk about rob reiner is more true for ron howard and that it's like what's the connected thread between these movies like so, i don't understand yes. i don't see oh, the definitely. same director in a lot of his movies well i think yes i think it's a little different for ron howard because he's got like the three da vinci code movies and at some point he and grazer and akiva goldsman sort of like became like a thing so like there is a little bit more of when you look at like a beautiful mind cinderella man frost nixon that kind of holds together at least a little bit in terms of like, we are Tony prestige, but it is in, you know, throwing in there stuff like the dilemma and the Splash. missing. Uh, well, yeah, certainly early Ron Howard, Ron Howard up until a beautiful mind is a really heterogeneous uh, uh, filmmaker. There's a lot of different parts in that. And so I feel like everybody kind of accepts Apollo 13 as his actual best movie. And I'm not inclined to disagree with that. But you look at, right, Splash, Cocoon, uh, Willow in 1998, which is Ron Howard sort of hopping onto the George Lucas, uh, you know, Ewok movie-esque kind of a thing. Uh, I remember movie, right? I believe so. Is it Amblin? Well, it's executive produced by George Lucas, um, but I would not surprise me. Uh, Luke, it's Lucasfilm and Imagine, uh, so it's it's not Amblin specifically. Okay. But uh, God, I loved Willow back then. I loved that movie so much. Um, that definitely a big like me and my brother and my sister would rent that one. Um, Parenthood in '89, Backdraft in '91, which was a big hit as far as I remember. We've talked about Far and Away on this uh, podcast. The paper, oh boy, did we. The paper in 94, which I feel like was like, I think critics really liked that. And it was only really sort of sort of popular. Um, it maybe got overlooked. Apollo 13 in 95, Ransom in 96. Then he follows Ransom up with Ed TV in 1999, which 
really suffered in comparison to the Truman Show. Like the fact that the Truman Show came out the year before yeah. Ed TV really um, did Ed TV no favors. And then the 2000s, it's so hard. Like you look at like what is Ron Howard doing in the 2000s? There's he goes from How the Grinch Stole Christmas to A Beautiful Mind to The Missing to Cinderella Man to The Da Vinci Code to Frost Nixon, and then back into the Dan Brown universe with Angels and Demons, and then The Dilemma, which nobody saw but me, and I watched that movie, and I'm like, that Channing Tatum is going to be a star. I'm not lying when I say that. I'm like, this guy, he had already been in Step Up by that point, so like, it's not like he was an unknown. But I remember watching The Dilemma and being like, oh, Channing Tatum is hot and funny, and then the next year he was in 21 Jump Street and and proved me correct, so there we go. And then late Late stage Ron Howard is also re- really weird, where it's like, In the Heart of the Sea, Solo, Hillbilly Elegy. Now he's got the upcoming movie about the Thai cave rescue called 13 Lives that I genuinely have no idea what to expect of it. The cast seems really good. It's got Vigo and Colin Farrell. And yet, I don't know what to expect of a Ron Howard movie in 2022. Do you know what I mean? Right. So... <sighs> I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, very curious about that movie. I wonder though, because like they they pushed it to the fall. It's in like very like uh, awardsy, you know, friendly space. But it does also seem like the type of thing that they're just going to try to make money on this movie. Too. Like it could be a crowd pleaser you know, emotional movie you can take your whole family to see at Thanksgiving. I could see that. I could also see it playing TIFF, though. You know what I mean? I could also see it, you know, getting positioned in that way. And, I mean, Paul Greengrass, I think, at this point is a better filmmaker. But it wouldn't surprise me to have this be, like, a Captain Phillips-type success story, if it's good. I think the best-case scenario for this movie is a Captain Phillips, right? And again, I think it's easier to get a Captain Phillips when you have Paul Greengrass (laughs) making the movie... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, Ron Howard has made good movies before. And uh, and I think that sounds like damning with faint praise. But it's like, you know, even if not everybody loved Rush, like, Rush got good reviews. Even if not everybody loved Frost Nixon, that got a Best Picture nomination. And so we're not so far removed from those movies that it's out of the question. They're not all going to be hillbilly elegies from this point, you know? Right. So. And it's also, uh, there will be 10 nominees. So there you go. <laughs> yes. One last thing. We were talking about E! Online before. Um, the guy who played the Daily News reporter, who sort of hounds uh, Tom Mullen at the party at the beginning of this, was played by A.J. Benza. Do you remember? Did you ever watch the, the gossip show on E! On, on e! Television? I mean, his face didn't uh, strike me and i don't remember his name so no do you remember I mean, like, though what I the gossip early show was e, like i watched talk soup when greg kinnear was on it right so this was around that same era so they had a she show called the gossip that. show that was literally gossip columnists from all these like major papers would and it was um they would just sort of like film in their own little like you know uh little offices or whatever and they would and then the it's like early best week ever Kind of. And they would sort of go and they would sort of like whoosh from like one to the other. And they would just sort of like drop in little uh, gossip items. And it would be like Liz Smith and Cindy Adams and Ted Casablancas 
And I, oh, I can't remember all of the different people, but like, uh, there were just like a lot of, that's how I, you know, knew who any of these people were back at that moment. Michael Musto, I'm pretty sure was one of those people. And they would just sort of like throw in little gossip items. It was essentially like a newspaper gossip column in TV form. And, and you would get it like once a week or whatever on E! And it was so addictive. I would watch that and I would watch the E! show that was literally just movie trailers because Oh, I watched that show. That I was that show. pre pre YouTube, pre widely available trailers on internet, on and so that's where I would watch all of my movie trailers, and that's where I would watch. I would get all my gossip. Was uh, E people people talk about MTV nostalgia, and like there is a pocket of E nostalgia out there that is. Mm-hmm so formative and i want to people don't understand what e used to be before it was just reality shows yes i think people have even forgotten about like the e true hollywood story era yes. when it was good because i think right. they do still run e true hollywood stories yes not the same it's not no. the same uh who was the e anchor who uh soderberg either married or like dated for a very long time oh shit was it jules asner yes right Wild. Yes. Yes. The Karina Longworth of our time. Um <laughs> and like I just like the fact that like the name Steve Kometko is still like has a place in my brain somehow, like is a testament to, you know, late nineties E and uh and, and what it did for us. So anyway, uh shout out to AJ Benza. AJ Benza always seemed like kind of a creep, but like um he was sort of like the youngest of all those gossips because like Liz Smith at that point was like already like in her 70s and just being like back in Studio 54 days. <laughs> like, OK, so um, but I sort of I put that in my notes. Anything else in my notes that I want? We get a little Sinise side butt, which if you're into that, like good for you. Um, congratulations. There congratulations. I'm, I'm thrilled for you. We for didn't uh, we haven't mentioned that uh, Gibson was Globe nominated for this movie. Yeah, that's a big part of the the fact that we're putting it on this episode is uh, it had enough Oscar buzz for Mel Gibson and not only a Globe nomination, but like in Best Actor Drama. So like sometimes you yeah. can slough off, you know, nominations in the musical or comedy categories and just being like, well, was that Oscar buzz or was that? globes you know filling out a category but best actor nomination in drama that's that's pretty serious buzz and jeffrey rush wins also against oscar nominees woody harrelson for people versus larry flint and ray fines for the english patient the other nominee was liam neeson for michael collins a movie that really wish that we could do what's the nomination that that it got is it a score nomination i'm pretty sure it's cinematography there we go. Because I think it's Deacons. Oh, uh, well, I th- no, I it think could be right. score, though. No, I um, think you're right. Um, here, and look. And then obviously the other nominee is uh, Tom Cruise for Jerry Maguire, and he wins the comedy category. Yes. Um, yeah, I guess that's right. Interesting. Interesting I year. Watch Jerry Maguire soon. I haven't seen Jerry Maguire in probably at least a decade. I remember watching the 96 Globes and like Breaking the Waves was one of the best picture nominees that year. And I remember even at that yep. point watching it and being like, wow, like, and I had never heard of Breaking the Waves. So like that was, so at, back then, sometimes watching the Golden Globes would be the first time I would hear about the boxer or Breaking the Waves or um the the ray fines movie sunshine and wag the dog weirdly i remember when they announced the golden globe nominations for 97 i remember being like oh what's this movie wag the dog like it was still 
early enough that we did not necessarily you had to really 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 be an insider to know the full uh the full terrain by that point mm-hmm. and at this point you know we know the full terrain i mean i'm part of that problem going on v- uh vanity fair and talking about like here are all the movies coming out this year and <laughs> um it's just a different world um i want to mention this was an a minus cinema score movie so this was a crowd pleaser and it was also the number five box office movie of all of 1996 which uh it was 136 million dollars domestic which was good enough for number five at the box office that year there was only two films there's one film that topped 300 million and there was one film that it was in the 200 million dollar range but um 15 films that year overall made 100 million or more and i it's a really really interesting list in terms of genre Mm -hmm. obviously the fact that like it didn't all used to be action blockbusters in the top 10 um you're starting to see it a little bit more here in 96, but I wanted to, Chris, I asked you not to look at the box office top 10 for 96 and uh, guess, see if you, how many of these you can guess just from memory. The $300 million movie is Independence Day. 100% number one for the year. Yes. The $200 million movie is it Mission Impossible? No, that's your number three. It made $180 million domestic. Okay, so what's... It's not The Rock. Nope, that's number seven, 134 million. Was it a was it a Christmas movie or a summer movie? Summer movie. Okay. Summer. Well, late, late spring, technically. Okay. So like But it's a summer movie. Like for all intents and purposes. April or May. Yeah. May. What would that have been? because that's that's mission impossible though we've talked about this movie as recently as maybe even last week oh okay so oh it's apollo no it's not apollo 13 it's the previous year Um, it's a movie i live tweeted in early pandemic if that helps you at all it might not it was on um, amc one night and i decided i'd live tweet it and i had a ball i mean you did Home Alone, you did, we did the um, Ten Commandments. It's by an action director who had a massive action movie hit two years before. Massive action hit two years before, so that would have been 1994. Action director, is it the, It's. it can't be The Rock. I don't remember you tweeting The Rock. No. Um, no. Um... Yeah, so this is the movie this director did in between that 1994 action success and its horribly received sequel. The horribly received sequel to the 94 movie? Yes. So in between those two was this 96 movie that was number two at the box office with $241 million. It is a disaster uh, epic, really. Oh, Disaster Epic in 96. Right, because disaster movies were having a whole thing, and they were considering Independence Day a disaster movie. Yeah, this is more a natural disaster. It's not Volcano. Nope, that's 97. It's not Dante's Peak. That's 97 as well. It's not Armageddon, that's 98. Maybe we're not running away from the disaster as we would be in Volcano. Oh, it's Twister! It's Twister! There you are. 
God, I hate that that took me so long. Twister, Jan de Bont's movie that he made in between Speed and Speed, Speed 2 and Cruise Speed Control. Two. Yep. All right, so you got Independence Day Twister, Mission Impossible number three. You're missing numbers four, six, eight, nine, ten. Number four, you mentioned earlier in this podcast as you were wondering whether this would... A Time to Kill. No, that's number 10. Uh, So you got number 10, A Time to Kill. Uh, No, number four, you had wondered whether this was going to be higher than another one of this actor's movies in the top 10. Oh, Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire, number four. It's $153 million, so it comes... uh, uh, Twenty-seven million short of Mission Impossible. That's still very good. Yeah, uh, opened December thirteenth. Two and a half hour comedy. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you're missing number six, number eight, and number nine. All of them comedies. Oh, uh, one of them isn't the First Wives Club, though. No, that was number eleven. That yeah, was just it got outside like exactly the exactly a hundred or something. One oh five. Yep. Okay, so a bunch of comedies. It's not Jingle All the Way. Nope. Um, Where did Jingle All the Way? Is one of them 101 Dalmatians? Jingle All the Way was number 22. 101 Dalmatians, number six at the box office, 136 million, just behind Ransom. Hell yeah, Glenn Close. Yeah. Good for you. Make that. All right, so you need numbers eight and nine. One of them is. Is one of them animated? Nope. No, uh, highest ranked animated movie that year was number 15, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which made 100 million even. Yeah, people hated it. Um, trying to even think of the comedies that are in the preview. One of um, them is like hugely star driven. It's a very much a star vehicle. And one of them is very, it's a comedy and it's like, it's a broad comedy, but it is. Uh, it's one of our faves, and it is a very, very high-end director, a high-end writer, um, really star-studded cast, even if not everybody at that time was a big star. Um, huh. It is one of those movies that is you're so thrilled that that was a top ten movie of that year. Because uh, it's representationally for what it was in subject matter it oh it's the birdcage of course it's the birdcage there we go Um, it's beloved the birdcage yes i'm mad that that took me that long too because like the birdcage did make a shit ton of money 124 Um, million baby as a march um, release okay so i'm missing one comedy number eight big star vehicle very one you could call this this was very well received you would probably call its sequels and descendants more uh, ego-driven and self-indulgent than this one, which was at the time uh, received. It's also a remake. Okay, so it's not it's not a Robin Williams. It's not an Eddie Murphy. Eh? Who else? Eh? Is it an Eddie Murphy? Eh? Eddie Murphy with sequels, but it's not like it's Beverly not Hills a... Cop. That was done by now. Right. This is not a sequel. This had a sequel. Okay, what Eddie Murphy's had sequels at this point, besides Shrek? <laughs> um, he got a weird acting win that year. Hold on, let me look up and find out what it was. Oh, it's the Nutty Professor! It's the Nutty. Didn't he win, like, National Society of Film Critics that year? 
I think it's National Board of Review. Hold on, let me look it up. Please look it up, because this is the episode where I'm remembering the most random award wins. And if if I'm right about this, I'm going to be so happy. He he did win a major one. I don't think it was National Society. I it, think it was either like National no. Board of Review it, or Los Angeles. It was National Society. National Society of Film Critics. Oh, fuck. Best Actor winner. Fuck. Yes. Uh, yeah, Nutty Professor finished. What I heard did I on say? The TV about colon cleansing. I was thinking about going down there and getting my colon cleansed thoroughly. <laughs> Number eight made 128 million dollars that year as a June release. Yeah, what an eclectic and cool top ten. The other hundred million dollar movies that year: Phenomenon at number twelve, Scream, as we mentioned, cr- uh, clocked 103 million, and then number fourteen at 101 million, Eraser Baby, Eraser. <laughs> I loved you any oh rest in peace. Rest in peace, Chi Chi Devane. We love you, Chi Chi Devane. All right. Anything else we want to say before we uh creep into our IMDB game? We are uh This is gonna be one of our longest episodes. And you know what? Honestly, rightly so, because that ninety six a, a this entire fall month is just gonna be all that. Was That's rad. all this month is. Yes. All right. This so. episode is going to be as long or longer than the Da Vinci Code. Good. It should be. It deserves. Okay. The movie itself. Why don't you tell our listeners what the IMDb game is all about? All right, listeners. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we will mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Yay! We love a free-for-all of hints. All right, Chris. Joe Reed, give me back my um, challenge. Give me back my IMDb game. All right. Uh, So you want me to quiz you first? Uh, Sure. All right. So I just wanted to make a pun out of give me back my son. (laughs) Very good. Um, Now I'm trying to remember how exactly I'm tying this particular uh, cast member to this. Hold on. I'm going to. Oh, right. So Mel Gibson in 1993 directed i believe this was his directorial debut a movie called the man without a face where he plays a uh, oh yes a recluse where half his face got uh, uh disfigured very strange movie uh nick stahl was the boy in that who sort of learns a lesson from mel gibson but uh i believe accusations of childhood sexual abuse it's it's a strange right movie. that's right um yes who's the writer on that Oh, it's based on a novel. Interesting. Anyway, I believe Nick Stahl's sister in this movie was played by young Gabby Hoffman. So. I think you are right. Give me. I thought you were going to give me Nick Stahl. No, Nick Stahl would have. I don't know. Well, well, I guess we'll save Nick Stahl maybe for later. No. Uh, Give me Gabby Hoffman. Uh, Any television? Nope. Nope. Um, Is Come On, Come On on there yet? No. It is not. Okay. Strike now one. Now and then. Now and then. Bingo. Um, I don't want to get my second one, but she had that Sundance movie with Michael Sarah, something about a cactus, but like that brought her back for a while. Um. Okay. What are the other kid ones? Wasn't she... Is she in a Ron Howard movie? I feel like she... She's not in Apollo 13. But those kids are all, like, people. Huh. 
Um, okay. Now and then. Uh, what's... Is she... No, she's not in... She's in, like... Oh, God, this is gonna drive me crazy remembering her as a child actor. Because I think she's in a Spielberg, but it's not, like, Hook. <sighs> um... Okay, I'm just gonna guess the the cactus movie. You're thinking of Crystal Fairy. Uh, Crystal Fairy, not Cactus Fairy. But that was during her like uh, resurgence, where she was uh, in that, and she was on Girls around that same time. It's not She's that. so good on Girls. It's not that, by the way. You're wrong about that. So, but also, I will say also just to sort of uh, around that time, she was in Wild. And she's in, she's the uh, Jenny Slate's Wild friend. Wild is the one I couldn't get to, yeah. She's Jenny Slate's friend and Obvious Child, and she's very good in that. Um, but anyway, it's none of those, so strike two. Your years, oh, well, shit. <laughs> your years are 1989, other 1989, and 1996. Okay, so a movie of this year. Um, shit, and I just got... Um, 200 Cigarettes came up in my head. A movie uh, that I love her in. She and Christina Ricci are trying to, they're coming from Ronkonkoma to go because, to your Because cousin probably isn't even having a party. She is having a party. I just need the address. They say Ronkonkoma 800 times in that movie. I love them so much. But anyway, um, not that. That was 99. Okay, so 96. Have we mentioned it on this episode? Yep. Have we mentioned it as part of a fall movie? Yep. Okay. Um, big old ensemble. We didn't mention her in relation to it, obviously. Ooh, um, big ensemble. Yes. Is it Everyone Says I Love You? It is Everyone Says I Love there You. There we go. Very good. All right. So 89. Where is Gabby Hoffman in 89? She's a, a wee baby. She's a little kid. She's a little kid. So these are two uh, pretty popular movies. You've definitely heard of them. You've probably seen one, if not both. Um, what else? What else? Both featuring popular big movies. movie stars See, of that time. See, this was driving me crazy because I was like trying to rack my brain. I know that I've seen her as a child actor. Um, one is a I, comedy. I, I, one is a drama. Okay. One um, is, is one of them from Spielberg. Why do I think that she? No, did but one of them is a Best Picture nominee, which wouldn't from eighty nine. From eighty nine would not feel out of place as either a Ron Howard or a Spielberg. It's, it's Field of Dreams. Yes, Field of Dreams. Which uh, I got there from those uh, those clues, yep. not from remembering that she's in that movie, because I definitely haven't seen that since I was a little kid. She's and Costner I'm- and Amy Madigan's daughter. She's choking on a hot dog at the end of the movie, and Burt Lancaster has to emerge from the baseball field and become an old man again to save her. And it's beautiful. See, I never got into it as a kid, so I've never watched it as an adult. We'll see. It doesn't seem like the type of thing that's my thing. It does. I do remember that our VHS copy was like, remember when McDonald's had VHSs? Like, yep. buy a combo and you yes. can get Ghost for So you got like Field of Dreams with the McDonald's logo on it? Our Adams family had a McDonald's there logo you go. on it. Field of Dreams um, is one of the definitional Joe movie, but not a Chris movie movies like that. I feel fairly confident. Yeah. In. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, wait, like, would I not like it now? 
Like, if I, I watched it as an adult. The not? things that appeal to it for me are probably not the things that appeal to you in movies, if, if I'm going to take a stab at it. But, like, okay. feel free to watch it, and then if you hate it, don't I mean, ever tell me. I do need to watch it for Amy Madigan. I feel like She's we talked so about good. Amy Madigan in that. She rules James like, Earl Jones rules. Madigan, but you... Yeah, you'll love, you'll love the... The Amy Madigan highlights. The PTA meeting where Amy Madigan goes off, you will absolutely love that part. Yes, yes. Spectacular. Yeah. You'll hit, you love the it. baseball stuff won't appeal to you. The father son stuff won't appeal to you. Like, but like the Amy Madigan stuff will work for you. There you go. Okay. All right. Other eighty nine movie is a comedy. A big comedy star of the time. Also co starring. A an about to hit big young comedy star. Oh, weird. Okay. Um, we've already said Eddie Murphy. Yeah, not any. Not Eddie Eddie Murphy. Murphy? Nope, not Eddie. I gotta get the comedy star. Um, in the late eighties, comedy star. Yep, did a lot of big comedies. Um, Robin Williams. No, but. There is one unfortunate thing that that bonds uh, uh, this person that ha- this person has in common with Robin Williams. Sadly, someone dead. Yes. Okay. Um. So like in Gilda Field Radner. of Dreams, Gabby Hoffman was iconically a daughter, and in this movie, she's not a daughter, but a different relation to the main <laughs> too character. young to be a mother right but it's a different relation to the main character okay a uh, friend no uh, still still familial okay um she's a niece right so what would that make the main I star feel like we're we're having the pretty woman conversation <laughs> what would that make the main star is it uncle buck it's uncle buck Uncle Buck. She's the youngest also one. Starring Amy Madigan. It's her and Macaulay Culkin, and then the girl who uh, tries to uh, lure Richard Dreyfus away from his wife in, in Mr. Holland's Opus. Yes. All right. Congratulations. You got the Gabby Hoffman known for. It's weird that it's nothing more recent because she has had a pretty big resurgence. I'm kind it's of surprised. Weird girls. I'm surprised Girls isn't there. That's a big one for me. But also, like, Sleepless in Seattle is a big movie that she's in. Um, you know, even some of the, like, the aforementioned Volcano uh, from 1997, where she's Tommy Lee Jones' daughter. Anyway. All right. So for you, I went into the actual release calendar of what films mm-hmm. opened opposite, because it's very hard to find people we haven't done before. Uh-huh. Um, I went into the release calendar to see what Ransom opened against, and I found a great option from that, because what did Ransom open against? A movie I love. It is Set It Off. Whoa, nice. With a real uh, fantastic ensemble of women, Mm -hmm. one of which I have chosen for you, Miss Vivica A. Fox. There is one television, which I've never heard of this so if you don't get it, it's fine. We'll move along. Okay. I have one thought, but I want I'm not gonna go for it yet. Um plausibly a TV show that I watched that you've never heard of. Um Okay. 
So, Vivica, Independence Day. Correct. Independence Day 2? She's not in Independence Day 2. Oh, I thought she was. Okay. I know Uh, Will isn't, but I thought she was. Exotic. (laughs) Mary McDonald. Uh, McDonald, That's the best line reading of that whole movie. Oh, ballet. Ballet. Um, Speaking of Mary McDonald, I just watched uh, Passion Fish for the first time. Holy shit. Did I not tell you? Did I not tell you you would love that movie? I did. I fucking flipped for that movie. Yep. She's so good. Alfrey is so good. They're so good together. Incredible. Yep. Incredible. Yep. Why was Alfrey Woodard not nominated too? I know. I'm saying. I think she got a Globe nomination? She got something. She got nominated for something. But anyway. I think she won the Indie Spirit. What a great movie. So good. All right. So, Vivica, we've got Independence Day. Is Set It Off one of them? No. Unfortunately. All right. Give me years. Uh, okay, so your years, 2003, 1997, and then the television show ran from 2003 to 2006. Oh, okay. So I was, it was, if it was an early 90s television show, I would have guessed, uh, up, uh, Out All Night, I think it was, with the one with, sh- that Patti LaBelle owns a nightclub in it. Oh, I've definitely seen that. That's so good. I watched that movie, or I watched that TV show. Okay, so what are the years? Give me the years again. 2003, 1997, the TV show was from 2003 to 2006. 2003 is Kill Bill Volume 1. Correct. Uh, 97, is that what you said? Yes. Is it Booty Call? It is not Booty Call. Damn, okay. See, I thought Booty Call would be on the known for, and then this uh, TV show is, you know. TV show 2010? 20 uh 2003 to 2006 2003 so the, as kill bill is in theater she's on this is it the program. soul food tv show no okay see i would have also expected is that. it soul food the 97 though no damn it she's in soul food though right she's in one of those soul foods i'm pretty uh, sure i forget because when did I'm going to look and see if she's in Yeah, please. Please prove me right. I hope I'm not wrong. I've seen that because it used to be on TV all the fucking time. Yeah. But not in a while. And I think Soul Food was 97. She is in Soul Food. Okay. So same year as Soul Food. She's busy in 1997. There is uh, two music videos. Okay. One appearance on a television show, one miniseries, and then three movies. You are missing one of them. Wait, and it was the one. Soul Food and and what booty else call. did I say? Oh, Booty and Call is 97. Wow, so I'm really accurate, except for the one that's... Um, okay. Soul okay. Food... Okay, here's what I will say. Yes. Soul Food and Booty Call bigger roles this is the smallest of the three roles but it's the biggest movie oh god it's batman it's um batman and robin it's batman and robin because it's her and because barrymore no isn't true barrymore in batman forever oh no no no, in that same kind of role and um debbie mazar or is Debbie? No, Debbie Mazar. No, it's Debbie Mazar. Part. Debbie Mazar and Drew Barrymore are the two who are like sugar and spice. They're like uh, two faces, hench people. Right. She she's Mister Freeze's girlfriend in this. Right. Okay. Okay. Not not his late wife, which is uh, who is also in that movie. Listen, she deserve she deserved 
someone much more emotionally available than Mr. Freeze. Yeah, he's very Mr. Freeze he's very is cold. not emotionally available. She's fabulous. She needs to move on. Yes. All right. Now I'm looking this up. Who else was in this? Elle McPherson, but she was Batman's girlfriend. That's right. She has like two scenes. Vendela. Remember the model actress Vendela? Who was, she was Mr. Freeze's late wife. And then Vivica played a character that's named Ms. B. Haven, which... God love Phenomenal. it. Phenomenal. God love Phenomenal. it. Phenomenal. Okay, that's I don't think you're going to get this TV show. I've truly never heard of it. It ran for multiple seasons. It's called 1-800-MISSING. Nope. Have never heard of it once in my life. That's But I insane. thought otherwise the other three were... A pretty fun and phenomenal. What an uh, insane known for. 1-800-MISSING. Now I'm looking this up. She's the lead of whatever this show is. 1-800-MISSING. It's some type of FBI show. Her? Oh my god, it's Katarina Scorsone from uh, Grey's Anatomy. Oh my god, that's so funny. And Mark Consuelos. (laughs) Garys, if you watched 1-800-MISSING, please... Please get out our menchies and tell us about 1-800-MISSING. The the logline, two FBI agents, one guided by reason and another by intuition, looking for missing people in Washington, D.C. What in the world? What network was this on? I'm looking it up. Lifetime! Of course, there we go. Uh, Amazing. Lifetime in the United States, W Network in Canada. W for women. So there we go. Wow. Ran for 55 whole episodes across three seasons. Wasn't it we in the U.S.? We. W-E. We. We and Oxygen were the two channels that were competing for uh, ladies' eyeballs in the, the aughts. Yes. Chris, what an episode. It's a, it's a, what a long, it's a Leviathan, episode. but honestly, it's a, it's worth it. Uh, Fall 96 deserved all of our attention and more listeners thank you for sticking with us that's our episode if you want more of this at oscar buzz you can check out the tumblr at this had you should also follow our twitter account at had underscore oscar underscore buzz chris real quickly where can the listeners find you and your stuff you can find me on letterbox and twitter at chris v file that's f-e-i-l I, too, am on Letterboxd and Twitter as Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts. Biz- uh, A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So bring back my son and write us a nice review after you. Bring back my son. Bring back my son. That is all for this week. But we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz and the Pelican Brief. Hello. Bye. And a great guest. She hit the fan when she hit that wall. Girl, I got you lost and found you. Mama Ru about to show you who you was before you went and lost your mind. Bring back my sons. Bring back my sons. Bring back my sons. Bring back my Bring back my sons. Where they at? Bring back my sons. Get them back. Bring back my sons. Come on. Bring back my lady.